have, I got a story for you. Two degrees. Two measly, minuscule degrees, dear listeners. It has finally happened for your host. I am a single contact away from Kevin Bacon. Thanks to today's guest. Fun fact, also two degrees away from Sarah Jessica Parker and Justin Thoreau, owner of the best abs in the world. However, though, I'm officially one degree away from a New York Times best-selling author and a really fun hang. But first, a word from today's sponsor, since we were speaking about some of the world's greatest abs, AndrePsyche.com is gone. But Andre Psyche on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter is alive and thriving. You see, Andre has adopted a minimalistic lifestyle for materialistic things like websites, cars, hair. However, there is nothing minimalistic about his creative libido. It's fully stimulated and viewable on most social media platforms. Andre is a freelance creator extraordinaire, someone who makes music, poetry, art, clothing, and lives to make others feel good. Search him up, Andre Psyche, the next time you're looking to friend or follow someone outside of your social circle. We are also brought to you by Cushions, making people feel comfy and warm since some organism had the brilliant idea to solve discomfort. I picture some sort of sloth-like cell that piled leaves up. Not exactly sure. It doesn't sound very scientific to me. Sliced bread, the wheel, fire, and cushions. Top four most important inventions to further our sedentary society. Are you feeling generous with your time? Do you have five more seconds? Take a moment right now and push the subscribe button on whatever app you are listening to the podcast on. Further support the Getting to Know You pod by going to our patreon.com and search getting the number two, no, the letter U, pod, it's all one word, and become a subscriber for as little as $2 a month. Again, go to our Patreon if you've enjoyed getting to know anyone we have had on. Don't forget, friend and follow the Getting to Know You pod on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. It's getting the number two, no, the letter U, pod. That feels redundant at the moment. Finally, we are looking for sponsors and advertisers. If you or someone you know has a business or brand and would like to expand your market reach, consider partnering with us. We get to know people from all around the world, and the podcast is downloaded all across the country and internationally. Canada? The UK? Have you heard of them? They do have people there and they have Bitcoin. So again, if you or someone you know are looking to get more traffic to your site, more followers on your social, more purchases of your product, more clicks on your whatever, just message us. And now, getting to know you. Hello. Getting to know I'm going to do a terrific show today. Getting to like you, getting to hope you like me. Because I'm good enough. Getting to know you, putting it my way, but nicely. I'm smart enough. You are precisely. And doggone it. My 
on today's show. We are getting to know with 15, if that, seconds of pre-recording conversation, Jennifer. (laughs) (laughs) Jennifer, thank you so much for coming on, letting everybody get to know you. I really appreciate the uh, support and love, man. Sure. Thanks for having me. Um, So I'm just going to start with this because I'm going to nervously giggle the whole podcast. Um, You're probably the most intimidating guest I've ever spoken to. Wow, that's exciting. Yes. And I actually (laughs) just interviewed like a professional MMA fighter um, a couple of days ago. (laughs) I was like um, ex ex relationship. I was ex internet or ex Instagram stalking you. And you seem amazing. I'm I'm blown away yeah. by the talent. Um, I, I don't know. I almost want to like. I wish we were at a campfire where I could just sit and listen to you talk, man. I, that sounds nice. I wish we were too. That sounds yeah. like. Um, we'll imagine that. We'll imagine <laughs> it. I I did light a candle. Um, <laughs> 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 to smooth myself. So going through it, I was like, I I knew about the author thing. Um. Thanks to You Love Me, a comment I'd seen you posted with Caroline. And I, I don't even know how to say her last name. Kneps? Kepnes, yeah. Kepnes. So I've read all three of her books. Um, she's oh my been... God. We could talk about that the whole time. Dude. She's... Oh, it's so good. <laughs> it's like, is she psycho? <laughs> she oh, has no, to be a little bit, right? Thing. She's the sweetest. Like, I mean, I can't, there's no way I can express to you like she is the sweetest person I know. And like, I ask her about this all the time. I was like, what's happening here? I just think it's fascinating because she's incredibly sweet and I've known her before. She was a giant success and we worked together at entertainment weekly a billion oh, years ago. Oh, no way. And yeah. Um, and just seeing, you know, she, she was wonderful then she's wonderful now, but it is fascinating to get that kind of window into a person's psyche you know when you when you read anyone's novels that's true but then like this and i just finished the third you novel yeah um i i think i so good yeah i'm like maybe 20 40 50 pages away i think and i don't want it to end i'm so scared i'm never gonna meet joe again i'm so scared he's gonna be out of my life and i'm like no so i'm like stopping in between chapters being like that was enough for today. It's so, this one is my favorite. It's so good. And the good news is we're getting at least one more. So, oh, no way. Okay. I, um, so we we will not. This isn't the end of Joe. Um, she was on my podcast, uh, Pop Literacy, and she talked about how she is in the midst of writing the next Joe book. So, um, yeah, I think he's – and I think he gets better every time. He's so much fun to, like – it's weird that he's so much fun to hang out with and – you know, he is a murderer. It's, he's a fictional murderer, but it's, it's breaking hilarious. bad. It's, it's the, it's the, what do they call that? The anti-hero that you yep. just love to root for, except yep. he, I don't know if he has any like redeemable qualities like Walter White did. Yeah. Right. It's just as like, he's just like this kind of like a smart ass in his head. Right. Right. He's it, funny. And he really, really wants, he appears to really want to be in love. Yeah. He really likes, he really keeps falling in love and seems to really want that, except that he keeps murdering people. It's a problem. Yeah. yeah right. Well, so would you call it love? Because I've noticed a couple different characters bring that up about the whole, you're incapable of love. And I love Joe 
this this is my favorite part of the writing because you're in Joe's head the whole time. Right. I, I love how you came on the podcast. We're talking about someone else's work. I right? know. But- <laughs> I was like just an hour on Carolyn Cuff. is you. It's, it's, I just finished it too. So I, you know, it's that feeling of like when you want to stay up late yes. at night and keep reading. Like I was so involved in, in reading that book. And I don't read thrillers all the time, but I have a couple friends who write thrillers. They're not as good. Uh, I'm not just, to insult your friends. I'm yeah. sorry. I don't know who they are. <laughs> including Carolyn. Including Carolyn. Um, and so these are the ones I read and, um, they're always, it's weird to say that they're fun, but they are, you fun because we know they didn't really happen and no one died and it's okay. Yes. But, um, yeah, it's, it's really fascinating. So the Joe breaking down a scene, then when another character comes in and all you get is the dialogue and the dialogue does not match how, <laughs> Joe, what's going down, how Joe's describing it. And it really conflicts me because it's like, wait, Joe, like, are you, are you just so hyperbolic that, or are you like demented in your mind that this is your reality, but really you're like pissing yourself and sobbing, but you're acting so tough, even though you're tied to a tree. Like, I don't get what's, what's real. What is real? And it really is, man, the, the perspective of Joe. Um, and I forget how the first book starts. But I know like within a page, you're just, you, you love, you're like, oh my God, this, this character has like, I don't, so many layers of depth. And you're like, yeah. how do you do that so quick, man? How do you it's, just give the personality? Really, it's really fascinating. And I think especially like, cause I write nonfiction. So it's very, very different. And I'm just fascinated by people who can make this stuff up and give us, you know, just like draw you in with this stuff that they've made up. I don't know. It's just really fascinating. Yeah. I, I, yeah, it's, um, I'm so glad that there's a fourth book coming. That's, that's relieving to me. And I'm, I'm kind of like the geeky old school, you know, like back in the day when you found, um, so another, again, part of why I'm intimidated, Instagram stalking you. Thanks to Joe (laughs) teaching me some lessons. Like I see a couple of like, you'll post the playlists. So not, I see that you run half marathons and shit like that. And, I'm looking at the playlist and it made me think I was on Joe before the Netflix series. And I Mm -hmm. equate that to like back in the day when you were the first to discover the CD and you like brought it for the ride and Mm -hmm. you're like, Oh, you haven't heard of no doubt. And then it's like, boo, I'm the one that introduces you. Yes. And it has that. I don't know, man. I like the fact that I was almost on the ground floor of the cult following. Yes. And now it's mainstream. Exactly. That's always a good feeling. It's always fun when you can feel like you're the one who really understood it and it's special okay. in that way, you know? All right. All right. Let's, let's get to know about you. You are right, right. man. I, it'd be fun to do a book study, but that's another time. Um, <laughs> I, so here's where I, my limit, I was like, okay, she's a writer. Clearly she's super talented. Like I'm looking at the range of the books that you've written. And then I see an article where you have like multiple piece stories on Dennis Rodman. And oh my God. And you, you like, I guess I must've posted those or something. Yes. Um, I was posting stuff last year because I was, I think this is not unusual that a lot of people were going through their old stuff last year oh, yeah. because it's like you had time suddenly and you could clean out your old files and stuff that. And, um, but also was a little bit because I watched that, um, oh my God, oh, yes, okay, the documentary series, The Last Dance, yeah. about the 1990s uh, Chicago Bulls, 
which was incredible. Ten-part series. Like, so in-depth. Just the detail and the way they put it together, including Michael Jordan. And, 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 yeah, keep going. I'm sorry. But, yeah. My favorite favorite thing about that, as a side note, was just, like, so all the footage of Michael, when they would show something to Michael Jordan on an iPad, they'd show, like, somebody else's interview where they were saying something about him, and then he'd just laugh at them. That was my No. Just like Michael Jordan laughing at an iPad is, <laughs> is my favorite thing. Um, but yeah, Dennis Rodman was a huge part of that. And of course, it kind of just reminded me of how big they were, how big he was, all of that stuff. And I was from Chicago, so I understood that. But I, my first job was um, at a tiny newspaper called The Daily Pilot in Newport Beach, California. And um, I was the Newport Beach reporter which really meant, you know, it was like everything. I would go to city council meetings, but I would also do like feature stories. It was like anything going on in this town. And what you need to know about Newport Beach is it's one of the wealthiest towns in the country. It's right on the water. Yachts, every, everybody, every interview would be like, meet me on my yacht, you know, like big billion dollar homes, like all of this stuff. So while I was there, this is the heights of 1990s, Dennis Rodman. He got a place there. And, um, you know, you can't ignore that when you're a super local reporter. Like, this is the big news. And I'm sorry to interrupt you. So I live near Rehoboth Beach, Delaware. So it's not, it's not, I don't think it's on that level, but we do have the locals and it's just weird how you know everybody and you have the one local newspaper that everyone Mm -hmm. still goes to and it's like, that's the spot. And I'm, That's right. And I'm wondering, is it, did it still maintain that same kind of feel, even though it had like those uber wealthy people? It's more so. I think something I learned, like I had um, at the very beginning of my career, I was a newspaper reporter. Like for, it felt for like it was forever, but it was only for like, I think eight, five to seven years, something like that. Um, and I developed a weird specialty for no apparent reason of covering wealthy communities. And something <laughs> I learned every place I covered this one was the main, was the first one and the, the kind of trendsetter, but I went on to cover a couple other towns at other jobs and they were always like the wealthiest town in their coverage area. Okay. And what I found was it's because they care so much about property values and they care so much about their community, you know, kind of for snotty reasons, a lot of the time um, <laughs> and property value reasons that they want serious they want to know everything that's happening in their town they want to know everything that's happening at the city council and they want to know when a celebrity moves in and that was one of the big stories was when i was covering newport beach in the mid 90s well mid to late 90s was that dennis rodman got a place there right on the beach and so i did a series of stories that was basically like searching for dennis rodman so i was basically stalking dennis rodman i'm sorry to say and um, they were really fun. One, one of my favorites was actually the one where I didn't find him at all. It was just where I went around town. And I mean, I was doing this on like a Wednesday in the middle of the day. So of course I didn't find him. But I just went around town to all the places he had been rumored to hang out and talked to people there. So I talked to the bartenders at bars where he had been spotted. Um, he had been rumored to have gone to the Victoria's Secret um, in the mall you know, so I went there, like all of these different places and just kind of talked to people who had seen him. And it was really a fun little peek at like how people feel about celebrities and what they observe about them. So I did this piece and maybe one other one that was just more about his house and the fact that he had moved in. 
And then the the sort of denouement of this story is that, so I do these two, it's fine, whatever. And then my parents, my family comes in to visit me. They drove in for some reason. I remember that they drove from Chicago. I have no idea why they drove, but they did. And so I knew they were coming in that day and I was going to meet with them. You know, I was just going to meet up with them after, after I was done with work and they were going to a local restaurant called Mimi's Cafe to like hang out while they waited for me. And my mom, this is a very period piece because my mom had to call me from a payphone. Nice. Call me from a payphone at Mimi's Cafe and, you know, called my my landline at my desk at work. And I was kind of annoyed because I was like, <laughs> you know that I'm like trying to finish work so I can come see you while you're calling me. And she was like, Dennis Rodman is here. And I was like, what? And she was like, well, I know you've been doing these stories and he's here. I found him. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God. So I, it was actually, I remember this. It was the time when all the editors were meeting, you know, to plan the next day's issue. And so they were in the conference room and I walked into the conference room, which I would never do normally. And I said, Dennis Rodman is at a restaurant with my parents. I'm going to go see him. And they were all like, you should do that. <laughs> so I did. I went to Mimi's Cafe and saw Dennis Rodman in a booth, in a corner booth. And he was with like his crew. And they were these, I mean, he's an enormous man. Like so he's just, it, uh, it's like to see it in person. You know what I mean? I like, was it's wondering so that different. because like, I'm, I think the tallest guy I hang out with on the regulars, six, four, I'm five ten. Okay. And, yeah. and like I can't picture because he's on the smaller side of NBA, six eight ish, six nine. Yeah, I, I was gonna say six seven. Yeah. Um, that somehow sticks in my head. I but I feel wrong. like that would not aside from just the way he dressed and appeared. The pure size right. of that man would pop at a. I just at remember him like in a corner booth and like feeling like he took up the whole thing, even though he also had other enormous men with him who were his bodyguards. Uh, and so I, you have to also understand, like I am a at this point like a twenty-one-year-old, ninety-pound white girl. So do you go all um, like groupy? What's your approach as you're going? How do you think you're going to get it? I I'm certain that I was very professional. Like I'm <laughs> sure just because that would be my personality at that time. So, but I, I did, I do feel like a, a good journalistic strength I had was that I was this tiny, unassuming girl. And it's still true to some extent, but especially when I was young. And so, I mean, I was 21 and I probably looked like I was still a teenager, but I'm wearing a suit because I want to look professional. <laughs> and so I just walked up and I explained like, I'm, hi, I'm Jennifer. I'm from the Daily Pilot. Um, I'm, you know, we're so excited that you're here in Newport Beach. I would love to ask you a few questions. I think he, he said like one or two things to me that I, I wrote down. And then, um, you know, his people were like, he's like, they were like, you should just call his publicist and you can get an interview, which of course never happened. Like I tried it and uh, yeah, okay. it didn't work. But that was the sort of conclusion of that story is that my parents found Dennis Rodman. He was just chilling. And I love that he was at Mimi's Cafe, which is like a chain restaurant known for its muffins at the time. Um, just like the last place that you would look for Dennis Rodman in town. And that was that story. So I found those old clips and I was really excited over, I think, last summer. And I posted about them. Do, so the title, no, I guess I have two things. One, like, do you buy mom's dinner for the tip? Like, <laughs> is that the repayment? Exactly. Right? Um, okay. yeah, I just want to know etiquette. 
<laughs> the story is its own reward, I think, too. It's like it's like such a classic in my family and in, of my journalistic career. Because what's funny, too, is that, like, no one knew this at the time that I would go on to, thank goodness I don't have to, like, stalk celebrities for my job because I would not like to do that. Um, but the fact that I go on to be an entertainment reporter is extra funny. Yeah, right. It led. And the, the title that I loved was Digging for the Worm. Digging for the worm. That was a good one. Um, I, you know, I can't take credit. That I was, was one of my editors. Uh, usually, especially at like a daily newspaper, um, it's usually the editors who come up with those, and they were they were solid. They were really. It was just like a great whole little sequence of events. That was like three stories or so, and I was so so excited that I found them because I didn't think I still had them, and I really went digging after watching that documentary. God, that's how did you? I would ask the stupidest question. I didn't go to journalist school, so maybe that's sure. why I would ask the stupidest questions. But like when you're going into stores and you're kind of trying to track him, how do you not go like National Enquirer, creepy looking for dirt? How do you? I I would assume you want to do it so that if he's open to it, now you have this relationship and you can continue to have his trust and let me put out decent things. I don't want to put you out of contacts or anything like that. For sure, for sure. And I think I was, like I said, I was pro I was pretty focused at that time, especially because I was so young and I looked young and I was tiny. Um, so it was like, it's almost like that thing where you're like a little puppy who barks a lot, um, where like you want to prove that like you're okay. So I think I was, you know, probably even then, which would be very characteristic of me even then to now, you know, something that I always make a distinction in what I do when I explain to people what I do, like that I'm never looking for gossip per se. Um, I'm more interested in like celebrity culture. I'm interested in fandom. I'm interested in the cultural stuff surrounding someone. So I think in that case, it was, it was fun to just ask people like, did you see him? What did you think about him? Were you excited? You know, even I talk, I'm pretty sure I even talked to some people who like didn't see him, but just had gone there thinking they might or whatever. They so I'm always with. more interested in like, <laughs> what is the, what is the idea surrounding him? And, and especially it's just like, like I said, seeing that documentary really reminded me of how big, I don't mean physically, which yeah. he also was, but how, what a big deal he was Beatles. at the time. He was iconic like it was like michael and him and he had this other part of his persona that was so pop culture right like he was married to carmen electra he had these really gender bending did ways the that dude were wore, wore a dress wore a yeah. wedding, dress wedding dress as a like it took 10 i want to say it was john amici and it might have been mid 2000s to finally come out and be like, I'm a professional athlete that is a homosexual. But right. this dude, I, like, I had to be almost a decade before that was like, I ain't gay. I'm just wearing a dress. And you're like, what? Or, really? Or, and he's like, or I might be gay. All these I don't care. Crazy things. He wore makeup. <laughs> he dyed his hair. Yeah. And no one knew what to make of him, especially in Chicago. And he just, in retrospect, I feel like we haven't talked about this enough. It's like, he was such a trailblazer and you know i it, it's not like it would be even now that would be a big deal but like it's it's mind-blowing that he yeah. did that then as an nba player i do wonder so do you think if social media was the way it is now because the troll i couldn't imagine the the trolling not only would it be like racial because the black dude's doing stuff yep. like you don't dye your hair like that and then you're 
offending with gender. So now you could include this whole like sexual orientation on top of it. And I'm thinking of how many trolls he would get. And I've seen documentaries about his mental status. Like he was suicidal, I believe, when he was in Detroit. He he had a very hard life. Like he grew up very rough in the documentaries I saw. Yeah. And I'm always I would be interested if he would have kept pushing those limits had the trolls been able to get access to him. Yeah, I agree. I think it would have been in on one hand, I think he would have been an incredible social media star. Oh, he'd have fired back like crazy. Right. <laughs> And, and just like, I mean, what, I want to see that Instagram. I wish it existed because I would want it like just to see his looks, to see all of that. Um, and he'd be a real hero now too, to, to a whole group of people as well that I just had blocked out so much of what had happened. And I guess I hadn't had the tools like most of us to contextualize what he was doing. And so at the time it was just sort of this ha ha joke kind of thing, right. but Really, I mean, I I would love to know more. I would love to see more journalism done about like who he may have touched. You know what I mean? Like who who maybe had seen him at that time and thought like, oh, this is a person who's like me. You know, we didn't have the language. We didn't even know to talk to call someone trans or mm-hmm. you know gender non-binary yeah, or, or any. The we word fluid would not have been associated with any like label. It was barely right. like we we had maybe just so such simple labels for people who were trying to discover what what makes them happy (laughs) exactly exactly it was like gay or not was kind of like all we had and here he was married to one of the sexiest women you know at the time like in pop culture um they had a really famous relationship too so i think we were just so confused that we were like ah and kind of ran away or made jokes yeah it's at the same I don't know. It, it, like we're Dennis Rodman experts, but it's fun to speculate. Like no. he, he would be the dude that would have like the first guy to have a billion followers. Yep. Yep. If he was able to post, because that's like, we didn't even mention in our conversation, Madonna, like yeah. the dude, that's right. like the, she's involved in his world. You're like, yep. it, it's the pull that man had. Yeah. Yeah, I really, I, it's making me want to like research more about him um, because I feel like we have still barely scratched the surface on that. And that documentary has him in it, but obviously is so much about Michael, which yeah. is fine. Um, but, you know, I think, I think there's more going on Dude, there. That'd be still. a really cool idea. Like, I'm sure like you need my little ideas, but no, my, it's true. my pitch would be, and it almost be like in a kid's picture book form or some sort yeah. of comic where like you put up a image of Dennis Rodman and then you do the interview with someone that that moment impacted mm-hmm. and you like contrast it and you would just be like going through almost like a humanistic thing of like yeah I was I've had the courage to blah 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 yeah. based on this picture like that exactly yeah. exactly yeah I think I think that's really true he was just very very ahead of his time and um you know I hope I hope he's doing okay now He's, I don't um, really know. He, I, he's de-escalated war with North Korea, right? Sorry, did, I forgot. Did you see you that? Like, dude, he set up like an NBA game with 50-year-olds going. Over. He was yes. the only one that was talking to the man, talking him off, pushing the button. Yes. I forgot about that. <laughs> like, think about that range. Like, it's he grew up like in I forget was it Indiana? He mm-hmm. went in an Indiana farm and played in community college, and like now you're an ambassador in North Korea. I don't know. Maybe this is my next book. I'm not sure. It's it, was, There's a lot. There's a lot there. 
was he the first, and I, I don't know if it's like diminishing to other people that you cover to say if he's the first big time, you know, like levels of rankings of, oh, he's the most famous at the beginning. But like, right, was, right. He, was he like the first one where, yeah, where you're like, oh, name, name recognition, I guess would be a way yeah, to say it. He's definitely, it's it, what's funny about, especially Newport, Newport was definitely the, like I was saying, I covered other wealthy towns, but they were nowhere in comparison to Newport beach. Um, and Newport would attract, you know, retired celebrities a lot of the time. So I did a big piece about, um, Bill Medley of the righteous brothers lived in Newport beach. And I was super excited about this when I found it out. So I actually, I don't remember how I figured out how to get access to him, but I did get to him and do this big profile where I went to his house. Um, they're famous for the song like Unchained Melody. Um, some, I'm sure other ones too, but um, I was really was hoping so you were going to do more like maybe like five or six verses. I thought we. <laughs> oh, I thought we. Oh, dirty dancing. Oh no, ghost. You know, um, it's not one of those songs. Uh, what's that other one? Now I can't think of it right now. But, um, you know, they had a, they were like a big, you big took, group. You took me to the pottery wheel. That's the pottery wheel, right? That's right. That's, what I'm, that's exactly yes. right. They, so they were, that's why I knew them as a oh young person at that time, is that they were, they had a weird renaissance in movies. So like that, and you never close your eyes anymore when I kiss Goose. your lips. Goose. Um, Last time Tom we crashed Cruise, and burned. Tom Cruise sings yes. in Top Gun. Top Gun, yeah. So, um, I knew, so I was excited. Because, I didn't know that was both of them. Yeah, that was what I knew him from. Oh and God. so I did a piece on him. Um, Will Ferrell uh, from Saturday Night Live and et cetera from acting yeah. is from Newport Beach. He came back and did like a benefit show and I interviewed him. So I had like these little pockets even then of being able to do, and this was clearly what I was interested in. Um, and then as I even went on to some other newspaper jobs, like I would always figure out, I would be doing the same kind of thing, like where I'd be covering city councils and stuff, but I'd always sort of try to figure out how I could get into like the entertainment section too, or, you know, I would volunteer to do concert reviews on the side or it little interviews when, Oh, another one. Oh, I forgot about this. But when I was also at the daily pilot, the band, the 90s band Sugar Ray. Oh, um, yes. From Newport. And they hit it big while I was there. So I did a piece on them as well. So, you know, the, the, just because this was such a posh place, it sort of allowed me some access to some rich and famous people already at that point. And then I kind of kept using that. Even when I, like, when I eventually got my job at Entertainment Weekly in 2002, I actually recently, during that same excavation that I was talking about of my stuff, found the old resume and cover letter that I had written. I saw that. Congratulations. Northwestern, I, right? You went to yeah, college in Northwestern? Yeah. Yeah. I went to Northwestern. And I, in that resume, to get the job at Entertainment Weekly, I actually mentioned all of these things that I just mentioned to you. I was like, well, I've interviewed Sugar Ray and you know Bill Medley of the Righteous Brothers and Dennis Rodman. So... Uh it, it did me some good. I was wondering, is that like, is that like the seal, the deal sealer where you got to be able to drop some of these names in order to move up to larger publications? 
I mean, I think it helps in the sense that, like, I don't even know if they're looking for name dropping per se, but, like, some sense of, like, that you can do this sort of thing, you know how to do it. Like I said, I can't actually even remember how I got some of those interviews, but it clearly shows some level of, you know, drive and determination because it's, once I'm at some place like Entertainment Weekly, the reason you get interviews is because you're at Entertainment Weekly. Yeah, right. But the other places, you kind of have to have a little more chutzpah to be even getting those stories, you know? And so it showed some kind of, you know, entrepreneurialship at that level to be finding these people and getting these stories. I still can't believe, for instance, that I, I like that I went up to Dennis Rodman. That was just, that took a lot of balls and I don't know if I have that now. Like I'm a little lazy at my old privileged age. Like at that time though, I was like getting it. I was getting the story. Yeah. How do you So me, I would, I would be nervous and it would, I, I'd have the perfect setup. I'd play it out in my head like yeah. 10 times. And then yeah. as soon as I got there, it could be going exactly how I have it planned in yeah. my ideal. And I'd, I'd, I'd fuck up somehow. Like I'd, uh-huh. I'd forget something that I really wanted. Do you have trouble? It's trouble the wrong word, but how do you manage to like stay focused and not let like the nerves mm-hmm. overwhelm your, your focus? There's a little, there's a couple things. One is just that like, Uh, the one thing about, so I was at entertainment weekly for 10 years. And I think that that was such good training for a million things. It was like a life changing job. But one of the things that it did is it just got me really used to celebrities. It's almost like celebrity desensitization uh, therapy is what I think of it as. And like, I, you just made me think of the first time I was ever on a red carpet at that job. The first person I ever met was Kevin Bacon, and I was obsessed with Kevin Bacon when I, when I was a teenager. So, so this was not a good deal. You get me to two degrees. Oh my yeah. God. You're uh, this where is we the, are. This um, is the I, so I'm not even kidding you. Like, I can't believe this <laughs> happened, but it was at, like some movie premiere, and I don't think I really needed anything big from him anyway. I was just there to like ask questions and see what I got. But I think I actually like didn't know what to do. And so I actually said to him, <laughs> this is the first, this is like my first event that I've ever coming covering and I'm really nervous and that seemed to make it go. Okay. Um, but then I covered a bunch of red carpets like very quickly, which red carpets are the worst thing ever in the history of time to it sounds glamorous, but it's horrible. Um, seems at least like, for me, it seemed like a cattle show where you're just fighting the clicks and the attention and how you're going to yeah. get like maybe a word. It seemed like if you had a relationship, they might stop and smile for you, let you get on camera, give you a 10, 15 second. Right. It's exactly right. So I'm very bad at those situations. I'm much better at a, like, this has been planned. We are sitting down. I have a list of questions for you kind of situation. I'm much better in that situation. But I think just meeting a lot of celebrities made me realize that they're just like us, um, that they're real, they're regular. You just need to like figure out a way to connect with them in that way instead of like being weird you know (laughs) like the way that we want to be when we're in front of celebrities so the more that you can try to find something that excites them to talk about the more that you can connect with them as a person and you know ask them something they haven't been asked a million times all of those things really help and mostly like I've actually taught classes about interviewing and I always say like the biggest thing to do is just 
like to listen and respond in the moment more than any other, which it seems like for instance, you do like, you're really just going with like, this is happening. Let's go with the flow of this conversation. And I think that I usually have something of a plan. I go in with a list, but I also try then the best. I'm not saying I always succeed, but I try the best I can to then really listen and just connect with the actual person. Because they kind of have to have an agenda somewhat of how they want to be presented, right? And you, I would think you'd have to respect that because if you just keep digging on something that they're not willing to go to, like what, what's, what good is going to come of it? I imagine the whole thing would just be a scrap. Exactly. And so I like, that's, you know, one of the things that I learned about if you have to ask about kind of sensitive things with them, that sort of thing, like I'll never, sometimes publicists would try to get you to say like, okay, you, you can't ask about this. And I would always say, I have to ask about it because I have to get some response, but their response can be, I don't want to talk about that. Right. They're, they're an adult. I'm an adult. We can both just, you know, I can be like, what about this? What about accusations that you are a big jerk? They can say, I don't want to talk about that. Or they can answer. And that's all, all of those are legitimate things, but I would never, I mean, maybe you would push in certain circumstances, but like you said, generally speaking, then it's like, okay. Or sometimes I'll even say to them, like, I know you're sick of hearing about this, or I, I'm sure you hate this question, but I have to ask you that actually goes a long way. Cause at least then you're acknowledging like the thing that's there instead of pretending like it's not. And I would think at some level, so if you're a celebrity, I don't know if all of them always come for money. I feel like most celebrities come up leading a regular life. And I feel like a lot of them will value just the basic paycheck. You always hear them talk about like, this was my first job and they have that drive and that work ethic. And I don't know if I've, I've, I shook Patrick Ewing's hand once when he came to a basketball tournament and I said, sir, thank you for coming to Delaware. And I didn't stick around for a response. And I think that might be the most famous guy like I've ever person I've ever come in contact with. Right. But I do feel they would at some level, sorry, man, I got to, they're like, get that paycheck. I I know that's how you cash it on Friday. Right. And they want to help out like that. Yeah. And a lot, I mean, they have, it's like the thing about also being a person who is interviewing a celebrity, it's like, everybody has to be there for some, everybody is there for a reason. Right. They might be there to promote a project or something. You're there to get your article and write something and to have quotes from a famous person. And everybody understands that. So then you kind of, it's like simultaneously acknowledging that and sort of breaking through that. And maybe, you know, the, the goal is to get them to say something new and interesting. It doesn't always happen. Right. Um, but, you know, it's, I think I just always would try to connect with them the best I could in that moment. Some, like I said, some are just terrible, but other people, you know, there's plenty of them who are great at this and ever who know, I remember like I interviewed Tina Fey a lot when I was in it lately. She seems um, like she would be, I I talk like I'm anywhere connected to her, but just watching her like in the Muppets movie with my daughter the other day, I was like, she would just, no matter where you are, seem to be like a great hang. She was, this is exactly my point about her. She was like this, and there was just a point at which, like this was, I cover, I always say I covered the rise of Tina Fey. So this was when she was like doing Sarah Palin on SNL, 30 Rock was blowing up. Like, and so there was a point at which I just was like, it seemed like I was on the phone with her like every week. 
And the way that she could just get on the phone, sometimes we could be on the phone for like five minutes and she could just give me gold and then get off the phone. Like she would just say like three of the funniest things you've ever heard in your life and then be like, okay, so we got that. Great. I'm going to go now. Like she just was and never, it always felt like she was a person and just really wonderful. And I think that's hard to do. And I can't imagine at the level of fame, especially that she was at at that time, like I would probably be really irritated and she never was with me, which was really nice. And they do celebrities do that. So the entertainment weekly thing, and I have zero idea about like reach and publishing numbers, but I'm assuming they have people in their lives that are like, got to be decent to entertainment weekly because they're going to probably bring in like 5 million box office views Mm -hmm. or is, mm-hmm. is it that analytical or is it more relational with, Hey man, you just want to trust this lady. She's a good lady. Oh. And then you get like favors. Oh. Yeah. I, and all of that, all of that would happen, especially at the time I was there. So I was there, um, in the 2010 or 2000s, right. Roughly. I was there like 2002 to 2011. So we were still pretty powerful and still like a weekly print magazine, which is no longer the case. Believe it or not, no longer weekly. Um, But at that time (laughs) it was still, there was a lot less, a lot fewer other outlets that did exactly what we did. And so, yeah, being on the cover was a big deal. Like there would be negotiations that would go on often. So I was a writer and like a lot of negotiations would go on before even I got involved. So my editors would like basically set up, you know, there would be long negotiations that would be like, we want to do a story on you. And then the publicist, you know, I don't want to use Tina Fey as an, like, let's just pretend. So like random celebrity, you know, maybe Sean, can you name them? Sean, Sean, the celebrity, celebrity, (laughs) you know, we, we approach him and we're, we approach his people and it's like, we want to do a story on him. And they would be like, you know, we only want to do this if it's a cover. And then, the editors would have to decide whether that was something they wanted to provide. And then, you know, they'd be like, okay, well, we'll do a cover, but that means you have to give us at least two hours with a reporter. And that's the kind of negotiation. So, you know, you have to give us three days over, you know. And then they would, they would be like, you're going to have to rent the Ferrari and we're going to be in a Ferrari. Right. Like we'll send a reporter out to LA to be with Sean, but he has to give us three solid days with him where we, spend quality time with him so that we can have this really nice story. So that's the kind of negotiations that would go on. And then I would get in with, okay, you're going to LA. You're going to spend three days with him. Here's the kind of stuff we want. And then from there, that would be my job to get it, you know, and, and then it becomes, let's have a rapport. Certain celebrities like Tina, among others, you know, I would cover over time, I did a lot of Grey's Anatomy at that time too. So like I was on the set of Grey's Anatomy a ridiculous number of times at some point because it was like the biggest show in the country then. Um, To the point where it, this is very rare that this happens, but it got to a point where like Patrick Dempsey actually said to me, you know, like, why are you here again? (laughs) And I was like, because they can't stop sending me because you guys are really popular. He was like, okay. Um, But it's, Usually you have to actually meet these people several times for them to even remember that they met you. So it's a strangely like glamorous and dehumanizing process all at once where it's like, no, I've been in your house and you don't remember me because they've met so many people who have interviewed them. 
I bet. Yeah, it, it would almost be like a turn. You, you would. It's it's a hamster wheel of red carpet for them, right, man. Right. It, and and I, I can't blame them for that. Yeah. You know, like I'm not mad that they wouldn't. I would actually always go up if if I saw someone I had interviewed before. I would still always go up and be like, just introduce myself again, like it never happened. Like, yeah. hi, I'm Jennifer from Entertainment Weekly. Once in a while, they would say, oh yeah, 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 I know you were at my house or you were on the set or whatever. But a lot of times they wouldn't, and I wouldn't be like, why don't you remember yeah, me? Right. Because how could they? Yeah, and that would just be like, why would you set up a situation that has to be de-escalated, right? Like, there's no point. You exactly. Have- you just have to kind of like, it's a, it's it's just a funny job because it is, it like I said, it's it was a constantly like on the one side, you know, obviously I was doing a job that a lot of people in America would think was really cool and glamorous, and it was. On the other hand, you have to constantly go up to someone as if like, you're in some kind of like romantic comedy about, you know, someone with who can't remember yesterday. That was like a Drew Barrymore one, Um, you know, where you're like constantly like, hello, I'm still me. And they, you know, you all, you go through it all over again. So it's, it's a very funny way. It was a very funny way to make a living, but there are worse ways. So did you, did you have the celebrity you secretly hoped was like, and maybe it happened where you were like, God, I just want him to ask me out or her <laughs> like someone where you hoped that it would turn into the romantic comedy of I'm oh now God. married yeah. and we have a life together. Oh, like, especially when I, I have to say, like, when I think back, I actually can really vividly remember. And there's part of me that knew it was irrational, but there was another part of me that just couldn't stop at, at the beginning, especially. This I, is when this happened. I remember like, you know, meeting Toby Maguire at a party, and this was like the heights of um, Spider Man and all that. It was like heights of Toby Maguireness, and really thought like, this is it. I'm gonna marry Toby Maguire, and this is great. Um, and a couple others who were like a little more attainable. So it was, it was like almost <laughs> rational. Don't, Do you know what I mean? Like don't. it was like it could happen. Um, and but it, like there would be another part of me that's like, no, this is I'm being crazy. But it's funny because I think I was just ha- yes, I just had a conversation today about how like there are stories like this. There are stories about certain celebrities having met their spouses. It's almost like Stockholm them. syndrome. You're just stalking yeah. them in this intense environment. I mean, because you are. What's funny about an interview situation like we've been talking about? I mean, you do everything, you do a lot of things that are like, I'm trying to think of how to explain it, but it's like a very high level of human interaction, it's an right? Intense you're like, relationship. You're, it's Keanu right. and Sandra on the bus. That's right. You need, <laughs> you're trying to do whatever you need to do to get this person to give you what you need, right? Yeah. So there's a lot of flirting. There's a, oh, I mean, I can tell you the story. I've, I've told this story before. This is the perfect example of this. So I interviewed Justin Thoreau. Um, do you know who he is? Fucking this best abs in the world. Exactly. Right? Like that exactly. dude, he was on, um, what was this series where everyone got, gets taken and disappears? Yes. Oh my God. I feel terrible that I now can't think of the name of dude, this. When that, that man went jogging, I forget the first time that he took a shirt off. And I oh. used to think that like, I was, I don't, I've never had a six pack, but I always thought I was in decent shape. He, to me, body shamed me unintentionally. That man, I mean, that's why he got to be married to um, Jennifer, Jennifer Aniston. Aniston. Yeah, right? And the rest of Dude, us. he crushed did it. not. Um, but he was on, he did a like an arc on 
six feet under back in the day when I was, you know, at Entertainment Weekly. And so I was, I did this profile of him when he was like not as famous. Like this is pre Jennifer Aniston, all of this. He's living in the West Village in New York. And I went down to meet him. He had picked the place. I always have them pick the place. Pick some gelato place. Can I, can I ask? This might be a really weird question, but okay. I, I've got to. I've got to shoot my shot here. So you're yeah. walk, are you walking up to him or is he walking to you? Who's there first? I was actually, it's funny you should ask because I was there first because he was a half hour late. Okay. So uh, first time you see him, is, yeah, are, he, are, are, no, no, are you looking like, where do your eyes, do you go beard? Do you go hair? Do you go chin? Are you checking out his shoes? Like, it what's was your kind first of the whole thing because what was happening was at this time in his life anyway, I mean, I think he was in fairly good shape. Maybe not like to the extent, the leftovers. Leftovers. Um, maybe not to leftover so shape, good. not not to Aniston levels. But like, you know, he's in good shape. And in this case, I remember he was wearing like a white t-shirt and jeans and like the dark rim, dark rim glasses, like, mm-hmm. you know. Um, stylish glasses, great hair. And uh, he had his dog with him. And I just remember like he was hitting like every button ever for me. Like I was, I, it's like a very kind of like Jack Kerouac, you know, style of look going on this like cool guy in the West village look. And I just like, I actually hadn't had a crush on him before that, but I like lost it. He was a half hour late. I did not mention that he was half hour late. I was just like, you're here. That's great. And the tape of this, like I would record interviews and the recording of this interview, I wish I still had it, except I don't. But I, what I do know is there is a point at which I actually say, is it hot out here? I'm going to take off my jacket. Like it's that, it's so embarrassing. Like (laughs) I so thought you were going to be like, is it hot out here or just you? That's basically (laughs) what I meant when I said that. I mean, I was so laughing hysterically at things that were barely funny. Like I, he had some, I mean, he must've known what he was doing in retrospect too. Like he got chocolate gelato and then like offered me some and was like, you have to try that. Like did the Fiji move gelato with Justin Thoreau in the West village. He rolled his own cigarettes, which I know we shouldn't smoke, but like at that time for me, I was just like, that is the sexiest thing I've ever seen. Dude, That was a huge Um, thing. Like when, when like that, that came through culturally where they were walking around with tobacco packs and that natural spirit smoking. Like, and he had this dog and he was like very relaxed and like ready to to just be there as long as we felt like it. And I just, and then the kicker to that story is that I had, this is also a period piece. I had to go because I had to interview Ashley Simpson and, um, cause she had a new reality show at the time. I remember that. So Jessica that, Simpson, she tried to do like the pop following Jessica, right? That's right. That's yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. so I actually had to say to Justin Throw, I'm sorry, I have to go interview <laughs> Ashley Simpson. And he was like, what? And I had to explain who Ashley Simpson was. And then I got in a cab. You to had to be town. so pissed. You were back. just hating her. Oh, I was her. so pissed. <laughs> and I got in the cab to go uptown back to the office. And I was like, oh, this will be good. I'm in a cab so that if she has, if she calls, like, if I don't get there in time, like, I'll talk to her on my flip phone and I'll just take notes. And my phone rings. And I'm like, oh, my God, it's too early for her to, it to be her. But I answer. And it was Justin Thoreau. And yes. he was like, I'm so sorry. Hey, it's Justin. And I'm like, ah! And 
he's like, I'm so sorry. I just talked to my publicist and I hadn't realized I was a half hour late. I just wanted to tell you how sorry I was. And he's and a nice guy. Like, he's really nice. And now I have his phone number and he has mine. So like, I definitely fantasized for like a month or two. How? That I was just going to get a call. <laughs> so if I flip that story and if I had Jennifer Aniston's phone number, right? I, I, I'd have to go like sober October. Cause I would be yeah. so scared. I would drunk dial her or just yeah. like, just throw it out there a couple times. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I really was like, I don't know, maybe, you know, maybe he's just going to call me. Maybe he just called me so he could have my number and he's going to call me back later. Like he was giving me, I was looking for an apartment in New York. He was giving me advice about like where to live. I mean, it was, it was, it was, a very formative experience, but I did not marry him. Instead, he married a different Jennifer A. It's just because he was confused. He was really, he took, I really he believe took that. the Jennifer I he, he could get. For me. <laughs> Actually, he called the wrong one. In his phone. Was, <laughs> and then she was able to capitalize. That's the romantic comedy. Like, nabbed him and it was over and that was it. But yeah, it was, that was like one, of, that was the best. And you know what I mean? Like, because he was like, not super, super famous. It made yeah. it feel closer to possible in a way that maybe like, I didn't think Patrick Dempsey was going to like leave his wife for me, but this one, I was like, I don't know. I, I, we live in the same city. I don't know. It just could happen. Yeah. Right. Did you, how, I'm going to assume based on the healthy lifestyle again, from my internet stalking that you do not smoke. No. I do not. I do not. I've never been good at it. Yeah. So like, <laughs> tried a couple times like I couldn't like it didn't nothing happened nothing I didn't I'm just curious did you ask him like hey can you roll me one like (laughs) I I just like watched and was very it's it's a weird thing that this was so appealing to me but I you know I come from the midwest and I didn't smoke and so at that time I was very into like literary bad boys Uh. from the west village so this was just like hitting every possible like I said it just it hit my kind of like West Village beatnik you know I just realized when I, you said literary bad boys like the last name Thoreau has to add like another layer like the exactly. universe is calling you right that's right and he actually is like he's written scripts and stuff too like he's a really smart guy you know and I remember him telling me he was writing something at the time, which turned out to be Tropic Thunder. Is that the right? Am I Did getting that write, right? Yeah, it was that was the Robert Downey Jr. Yeah, I love um, that movie. Ben I think Stiller. It's exactly. It's like I didn't one know of my favorite movies. Did he really? Yeah. yeah. Jesus. You talented. I know. People, and man. he has those apps. Like, what are you like? I can't, I don't understand. It's like Bruce Lee, so he's gotta have those electronic right. stimulus machines. You know, like, I just remember Bruce Lee being so cut up, and then I found out, like, he had all these patches, like, Nicorette things on him, and that was just (laughs) stimulating his muscles all day, and it's like, wow. Custom throw's got it going on, it's true. I I don't understand how you could, I, I would really struggle with, like, normal, if I'm around not excellence, but abnormal, yeah. <laughs> abnormal. Yeah. That would be, that would be funny. Um, abnormal, like so often. And yep. I like, do you, do, do you ever like dream that you're a celebrity because you're around it so much and then you have to wake up and be like, Oh wait, no one's going to follow me. <laughs> I think I had more. Yeah. I like it's It's not for me now. Like I don't 
see these people that often. Um, you know, cause I write books mainly now and it's like, you know, I, I meet some prominent people and interview them for my books, but it's not the same as when I used to, you know, there was just this, there was like a heights of my time in, at EW where, yeah, I was going to events. I, I used, I went to the Emmys like a couple years in a row. I would, you know, the same way these celebrities did, I would get to borrow, borrow a dress and go to the Emmys and be at the after parties and like hold people's Emmys. And I would know people there and it was really exciting. Um, so yeah, and it does like it, the thing that I found actually a little challenging in that regard was, you know, especially the women, even the men, as we were talking about Thoreau, but like, you know, they're different from us. They're different from normal people. Like I used to joke, like they're like made of something else. Do you know what I mean? Like their skin and their teeth and their hair. I mean, some of it is just, it's not even literally real right like get it done they get their they everybody gets their teeth done like but they have this incredible skin they have all this hair they all weigh you know the girls all weigh 90 pounds and you know I was tiny then too so at least I had that going for me but like they really make you feel like a troll you know like you think you're really cute in normal life as a normal person and then you go onto the set of Grey's Anatomy and just, you're like, I am disgusting. How do they even look at me? You know, just because it's like, they're so on another level. They all look unbelievable. Even the people who play, quote, ugly people. Oh, yeah. Are like, unbelievable looking. It's like, Steve Buscemi's pretty good looking. <laughs> like, we pretend like he isn't. But it's like, it's even the, the people who are older, even the people, it's like, they're an older version of incredibly hot. They're all just like, they look different and so I remember times when there's one part of me that's like fantasizing that I could end up with one of these men there's another part of me that's like I am so I feel so disgusting in comparison to these incredible looking women you know so I actually don't miss that part of it at all and I'm glad that I did it when I was younger and not, I mean, maybe not, maybe it was, it was a formative time, but yeah. And you know, now it's like, if I meet someone, I might, you know, it's like, I, of course, yeah, I've talked to Sarah Jessica Parker for my sex in the city book and she's incredible looking, but it's, it's a little farther apart. Like I don't have these constant interactions the way that I used to at when I was at entertainment weekly. So I, I don't, I, I miss parts of that. And I don't miss parts of that. I hadn't even considered the mental health like toll or aspect on the right. God, that's a, that's a unique perspective on its own. Like, did it, I mean, kind of joking about it, but did it actually get not like suicidal or hurt yourself kind of thing, but like, were you something as simple as like, I'm not going to eat this. Like did diet matter so much or you're spending extra money on clothes going into debt? All of that. All of that stuff. Um, I rem- I was thinking about this recently too. The way that there were, yeah. I mean, I might have also. Who knows what else was going on? If it was just my age, if it was this, if it was that. That's true. But like, I used to like spend a lot of money on beauty products because, um, like, it's not only that you're around these people and then they're telling you like, oh, I use this thing or whatever, and they yeah. use like stupid expensive stuff that, that they, they get, get for free. free. Yeah, no doubt, right? Because you know. You know. Um, or you hear about like they're oh you have to go to this person in Beverly Hills they give us give you these amazing two hundred and fifty dollar facials or 
you know, you have to get these $250 jeans or whatever. And so I did do, I just was in that headspace, both because I was looking at these people and also because that's what, you know, they're getting that in the gift bag when you go to the Golden Globes or whatever. Um, You know, and it's like, I once saw JLo from, from like far away and I'm still like scarred by this. I mean, scarred and and glowing at the same time from like this woman, even from a distance on the red carpet was like too much. (laughs) As God goes by Moses and tans him. (laughs) She's like a big glowing orb. Like you could smell her from, you know, 500 feet away. It was just like, this is the kind of thing that, that would just mess you up, you know? And so I, I I definitely don't. And just, I think I was hanging out so much more in that LA celebrity, whatever you want to call it, Beverly Hills kind of culture in general at that time you'd be on a set even if it wasn't the famous people telling you about this facialist or whatever like everybody's in that headspace and you know um it's cool to some extent but it's it is also a little bit mentally damaging and now i'll just be like those 50 dollars jeans are fine no doubt where's the clearance rack at marshall's that's where i'm straight headed like it's exactly so i i'm glad that I'm, gl- I'm actually, this is making me really appreciate that I don't, I'm not, you know, I'm not in that headspace yeah. anymore. Well, it's interesting you brought up age too, because that is, I mean, a lot of your identity, you think you know who you are in high school, you find your tribe, I, this is who I am, I'm a jock, I'm an athlete, everybody's seen the movies that resonate for decades because it's pretty true. Yeah. But you really find out who you are when you're more on your own making decisions. You have your own time. You start getting educated because you get to choose what classes you want to learn about. You get to choose how you earn your money. So I think those 20s are way more formative. And now you put in that environment and you, I feel like I not only looks wise, but then keeping up wise, I would just have to battle this sense of I'm not enough all yeah. the time. And like, I don't, that's, but you seem so happy. I don't know how you overcame it. I'm fine now. Like I said, I have. I also, you know, the last I left Entertainment Weekly in 2011, and while I still, while talking to famous people is still some part of what I do, yeah, it's a much smaller proportion of 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 my regular life, and I have so much more control over it. So a lot of it is by phone or maybe Zoom now, yeah, um, right. and so much of it is like you know, like I said, I might, I'll write a book and I write a book every year or two and might interview some, some famous people, but a lot, it's a lot heavier on people that I admire versus super glamorous. You know, the last really glamorous person that I interviewed for a book was Sarah Jessica Parker and she is glamorous, (laughs) not gonna lie. Um, but you know, she was also really sweet and, um, you know, it's, it was a lot less of that and a lot more of like talking to the writers for Sex and the City or talking to the writers from Seinfeld who are not glamorous. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, boys, but you're not that glamorous. <laughs> um, mostly men on that show who are just like, I mean, in different ways, it's like, it's intimidating in different ways, right? It's these people who have been incredibly successful, who are incredibly funny and smart, um, so you get more of that, I think, and I've had a lot less of, you know, encountering super glamorous situations all of the time. It's more like a couple very smart people looking back on things. God. 
that's something. So today, um, I was like, I had, this is, this is terrible. And I, I hope you get some sort of kickback because I do get interested in how artists get to profit off of their products. Mm-hmm. So I had one free audible listen left from my mm-hmm. Amazon trial and I got, mm-hmm. is it signed Feldia? Feldia, yeah. Right. And, um, first chapter, get a summary idea of how big it is. And mm-hmm. then the details, it's almost, I, I couldn't wrap my head around the amount of research and digging. And now when you're talking about, I have the entrepreneurship to go find Dennis Rodman. Right. Is it basically the same thing asking the Victoria's Secret person, what did he buy? Yeah. You're just finding who was in the room and like, hey, tell me this story. That's right. That's exactly right. And all the interviewing stuff even we were talking about too. Um, and, and this is my, like, it turned out, I guess I knew this even back then. I guess it, I sort of wouldn't have been surprised if you told me back then that this is where I'd end up. Because um, what I really, it's, it's glamorous to be on that red carpet or be at the Emmys or whatever. But I really love just like a lot of the being alone and just like digging into this stuff and coming up with what I want to know and having that control over like, okay, I want to know these things. I'm going to go find these people. So finding the people is part of it. And it's, I think it's a little bit fun. It's like detective work yeah, right? and getting to them mm-hmm. and persuading them to do an interview and then doing the interview. And yes, I ask insane questions and I will usually just tell them at some point, you know, like once we get going and have a relationship, I'll just be like, I'm going to ask you some weird questions now. I might email you later with more weird questions. So like a lot of it is recreating scenes so that it's almost like I was there. So I am, you know, apt to, if I have a good relationship with one of my sources, I remember um, one of the Seinfeld writers, Pete Melman, um, who I'm still friendly with. And he is wonderful. You know, I can remember emailing him in the middle of a random day and being like, hey, so when you thought of the Spongeworthy, you know, um, when you were inspired to come up with the Spongeworthy plot line, you mentioned that you were listening to NPR and there was a story about a sponge shortage. What car would you have been driving at that time? Yeah. <laughs> like, I will ask them, you know, what, what might you have been wearing? on that day, you know, all of these kinds of like crazy questions so that I can set a scene and really tell people like, make you feel like you were there. And that's what I was wondering too, when you were talking about the the culture of celebrity, not like mm-hmm. I'm trying to go back there, but I, I remember reading like Rolling Stone pieces and it's much like a novel where right. <clears throat> you picture like the writer going in and it's like a whole paragraph about just a person sitting by a pool and then they Mm -hmm. notice these sort of tanning lotions and this waterfall and you could get like almost two pages in of an article before you even get to a question that was asked and they Mm -hmm. do such a good job setting the scene and it comes through in the Seinfeld book but to me I'm like how the fuck do you do that for 400 pages man like that had to be so overwhelming to keep pulling in those details Mm -hmm. It is. And to some extent, I mean, I joke about this, but it's also true to some extent. Like, I'm always like, every time I go to write a book, I'm like, wait, how do you write a book? Like every time I'm like, do I really know how to do this? I'm not sure. And I think I've developed some systems. It's gotten a little bit more efficient, but a lot of it is just getting way too much and then winnowing it down. Um, and like my most recent book is called When Women Invented Television. 
And um, it was a little bit Incredibly gender biased, by the way, but I wasn't going to bring it up. Right. That's right. Um, <laughs> I, I felt excluded. No, I'm just kidding. I know. And I, there, was, there was one weird review that says something like, well, it's not really true that women invent. I'm like, okay, well, oh yes, God. it was a little bit of hyperbole in a, in a title. You're correct. Yeah, right? Um, <laughs> Apologies for yeah. my creative liberties. Yeah, exactly. I think the men may have already had their time. So I think it's okay. Um, but for that book, I have four main characters that I focus on and three of them are dead because this is about the time between 1948 and 1955 when TV was really first, like literally being invented when it was being kind of formed. And there were these four women that I chose as trailblazers. One of them is Betty White. So she is still alive, but she is 99 and all the other three are dead. And so it was a very different experience because it was a lot of like archival research, for mm -hmm. instance. So it wasn't even interviewing now. It was just going through their old stuff to find out what happened. And I really enjoyed that. But it was even more overwhelming because it was just like. <clears throat> Can you Google that? Like I'm picturing you like Da Vinci Code style on like the microfilms. Like yes. the old rolls of like newspapers yeah. and having to scroll. Yeah, it like was literally archival. So um, these three women who are no longer with us, in addition to even just like getting details on other parts, like even in Betty White's story, um, I filled in a lot of the details with archival stuff. So I there's an archive of old NBC network executive memos from that time. And so I was going through all of their memos talking about her show and how they could make it better, or why they were going to cancel it and what they thought of her um, I found old archival interviews with her from the time, which were really invaluable because she was speaking to, you know, journalists at that time. Um, the other three women actually had their own, you know, like if you're, if you're important enough, I think this is fascinating. If you're important enough, you recognize it at some point or your heirs do, and you actually put together all your stuff and you say like, oh, I'm going to archive this. So like one of oh. my women named Gertrude Berg, she had the first family sitcom, first successful family sitcom on television. It was called The Goldbergs. No relation to the current Goldbergs. Okay. And um, about a Jewish family in a Bronx tenement. And so she has all of her stuff, all of the stuff that she wanted people to see in the future. She has all of her letters, wow. her fan letters, her publicity materials, just in like boxes and you know, dozens and dozens of boxes full of papers that have been organized that she left in at Syracuse University to be, you know, her archive, which I think it's fascinating even thinking of being a person who it's, says like, the world will probably want no, my papers. I, I was thinking that like, I'm like, I don't have enough self-esteem. Like I right. need, I need to get me a hype man. Or I, I need to change my crew. Cause right. clearly I, but at the same time, like you do kind of want it because they, people <sighs> will be interested. So it's I, not like it's, it's egotistical you know, like in a bad way right like yeah. you're almost like grateful wow it's i'm incredibly grateful for what these women right? left um another of the women that is one of my main characters is named erna phillips and she actually invented the daytime soap opera like she oh, no invented way. the genre of the daytime soap opera and um what's incredible about her and the reason i mention her is she has an archive and so 
She has all of her personal letters there, which are incredible because people wrote amazing letters in the 40s and 50s. It wasn't just like, you know, some crappy postcard. It was long, involved letters that are very personal. She also wrote an entire autobiography that was never published. And that is in the archive. So that's like just short of being like a 300 page interview with this woman. This is everything she wanted people to know about her own life. And it was really personal and honest. I mean, she adopted two children on her own as a single mother and wrote about how she regretted having adopted these children because she felt very overwhelmed and didn't feel like she could be a good mother to them as this working woman who had this empire of soap operas so you know i mean that's incredible that she could leave that for someone like me to find no do you know why it wasn't published did she Just not want it or people she tried in fact I, there's actually the funny thing about it is that even in this archive there's even letters where her daughter seems to have tried to get it published. So the daughter had left some of the letters from, you know, her trying to get it published. It's possible there's all kinds of guesses I could make, you know, publishing is crazy. And who knows if, you know, it's possible she didn't try the right person. Um, you know, just didn't get the right agent, right editor, because the story is, you know, obviously I published it essentially, um, (laughs) which I feel a little bad about, um, in that sense, but, I'm glad that someone could know what she left, be, you know, via my book, because I think that for at least her, a big reason she wrote her own story is she really wanted people to know. She wanted the honest, she had a very, she had a lot of very dramatic things happen to her and difficulties. And um, like I said, it was particularly honest from what I could tell, who knows, but it the- seemed like honest rendition what was the time frame that it was written in she died in the 80s i think so she wrote it relatively late and then there was even a part i could tell i mean she has like a notation and it looks different where she added it was like she had written it maybe in the 60s or 70s and then lived some more and then wrote more pages toward the end and added to it because she is this incredible figure. I mean, she created the guiding light and um, as the world turns <laughs> and guiding light is the longest running. I have to get this correct. It's the longest running drama in broadcast history because it started on radio oh. in the forties and went to television. And only in recent years was it canceled from television. Huh. So it's something like 73 years that it ran. So that's insane. Like she had incredible success and um, not a lot of people know her name, which is part yeah, of why I, I have her in my book. I've never heard the name. Yeah. Yeah. And she's just a very interesting, like I said, she has this fascinating life where she adopted these two kids on her own, did never married, um, couldn't have children and had lost a child very, she had been pregnant when she was very young and lost a child and then really wanted them and then adopted these kids on her own and then kind of like spent the rest of her life beating herself up because she couldn't give them a father and really never forgave herself for that. And she always said, she always said she would give it all up if she found the right man, but she never, she either never found the right man or didn't really want to give it up or maybe a little bit of both. So 
<laughs> it's easy to romanticize when you're sitting alone writing. That's right. Like yeah, I give it exactly. all, and then exactly. you, and then you see Justin Thoreau, and then you're like, you know what? I got this empire. Uh, ain't that great? I, I might have given all up for Justin Thoreau. Two more scoops of gelato. He's not going to be all that. It's over. <laughs> He'll lose it quick. It'll be. And now he's eating a lot of gelato these days, yes. given the given the physique that he's got going on. Dude, that again, it's weird. It's weird. I don't know if it's weird where my mind goes, but it's what I think about. And I'm like, I feel I'm a fairly decently disciplined person. I'm very functional. I keep jobs. I wake up on time. I have good. I have a great credit score. You know, like I do things that allow me to present myself as disciplined. I, I can't take it to that level of like micro caloric intake or giving up like wine or drinks or like can't have fries for like a month. It, it It's amazing. Some of the sacrifices and discipline you look at some actors. Um, oh man. Who's the guy? I'm um, not, didn't, just play Batman. The Dark Knight. Uh, Christopher Bale? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Christian Bale. Christian yeah. Bale. Christian Bale. Dude, he had this one movie, I think it was like The Machinist, where he got all the, all the way to like 90 pounds. And then um, you're watching other movies and the dude is like a fat slob right. um, in the, what was it, American Hustle. Right. And when he played, didn't he play Dick Cheney too? I think yes. I forgot. I didn't see the Dick Cheney one, but you're right. And like the body transformations... You're like, how, how do you do that and still be yeah. a person? Yeah, I really, I mean, I know this takes us back to where we were before, but like, this is, these are the kinds of things, like when I would have these thoughts of like, oh, I should look like those people. I had plenty of other thoughts where I was like, thank God I'm not those people. Like, that is one thing that I'm actually, I didn't say this, but I'm really grateful yeah. because I feel like I have this in a way that very few other people do. But, like, I have great empathy for celebrities, and I also um, don't really wish – because it's like I know what those actresses are actually going through, yeah. for instance, to get into their Emmy dresses. Like, I didn't have to care right. if I got into my Emmy dress. No one was going to say anything about how I looked. But these women were starving themselves yeah. and doing – you know, and I just think, like, how boring it would be to spend most of your day, like, getting facials and – worrying about your pores and starving yourself. So, you yeah. know, I, I do also think like, I'm really grateful because when I look at most of those people, I'm like, I would not want that life. Yeah. It's, it, 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 it's, it's confining. And I guess that's why they, they want releases at some point because it is, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a prison of circumstance around. Them. It's really stressful. And that's not even getting into just like the ways that we, you know, it's like the, the sort of celebrity culture and gossip and all of that stuff of oh, it. Dude. I really, especially at the time I was doing it in the two thousands when we were sort of at the height of the paparazzi and um, all of that stuff. I, I do not, I do not envy any of that. <laughs> I would never want to be so famous that people were up in my business that way. When you were describing your day what stressed me was just thinking about the travel and schedule coordination yeah and I, I was curious about your life as a traveler like I guess when you're younger it's cool to travel because it's just an adventure you just go wherever you got like a tote bag or something and you're like that's it I'm just living yeah. this way I did it I was in LA so much at that time which I love LA and I kind of miss it right now but um I was in LA so so much and I think one of the advantages of that time for me 
was, you know, I think of our staff in general and most of us, I think were pretty young and like, I can't imagine how people with kids did this stuff. I think they just became editors and stayed in New York, but you know, I was really able to just go for however long they wanted me to go. I, like I said, I was with Grey's Anatomy every time I turned around, um, you know, and I didn't mind it and I liked being there, but I don't think I would like it as much now because I wouldn't want to be away from my partner just for however, you know, it's like they could just send me and sometimes they'd be like, do you want to stay and do this other thing? Sure. Okay. You know, and I just don't think I'd like that now. Did you have any like travel tips or secrets or did you like, is this something other reporters like share amongst each other? Like, no man, this is the real bag to get, or look at that dumbass with the roll on. That's going to take forever to get through luggage. Totally. I got very into carry-ons if I could, but if I was going to LA for a while, it was hard too, but it's like carry-ons and you know, so that you didn't have to wait for your bag when you get on the other side um and I had like certain things you know little travel size everything that I would take with me and I would do a lot of shopping there instead and just be like I'm just gonna get that on the other side that's always um, a good call you know all I had my favorite hotels at that time which is so snooty but I got very like you know laser focused on don't stay here stay here I loved staying on the sunset strip I had a couple places there that I really liked does that get like yeah. covered like like so when they yeah. send you on assignment yeah. you just of get course. to say I'm staying yeah. here yes and for a while when I first started it was headier days in magazines um right. we really <laughs> some ridiculous places really? um and then eventually toward the end of my time there they were like we, you cannot stay at L'Hermitage anymore. Oh my God, L'Hermitage was so good. Can, um, can I know the tab? Like, what would that be a night? What can you share? I, that? That's a good question. I want to, I'm going to guess, I'm just making this up right now, but I, I'm guessing in like the two to $300 range a night. Wow. Um, and eventually they were like, they cracked down on like certain hotels we couldn't stay at anymore. Um, and, you know, it just got, it's like, I was really there for like, a little bit it's I can't imagine what it's like now but like yeah. for the last couple of years of my time was very much that a little bit of the decline of like we cut something like half our staff in 2007 eight right but you know the crash time um and things got really a lot tighter they stopped paying for our cable there were certain hotels we couldn't stay at. There were, there were many more travel restrictions in terms of we just couldn't be sending people to LA all the time right. from New York. It would be a lot more of like, isn't there just someone in LA we can send? Um, though one of the last things I got to do at Entertainment Weekly was that I got to go to Northern Ireland for the beginning of Game of Thrones. So oh, no way. Uh, that was nice. <laughs> Talk about abs on abs on abs. Wow. There were a lot of abs. There were a lot of abs there. It's true. Um, got to drink Love Guinness with people with abs. Um, <laughs> that was fun. That was a good time. But yeah, you know, I mean, it, it definitely started, started to like, you know, um, shrink as I was there. And yeah. so I feel like I got out at a good time because it was getting less glamorous as it went. And I have no idea what goes on now. Yeah. I, I, when I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's sad because, and I'm, I'm more of a sports guy, ESPN, and you just hear some of the commentators, the regret when the layoffs happen, because they don't think of like, you see the person on camera that gets laid off, but you don't think of 
beat writers and they've spent whatever 30 years yep. creating these relationships and it's like sorry man no longer getting a paycheck your whole industry's gone like it's, it's heart it's heart-wrenching it's it really really is i mean i i get sad when i think about it sometimes too just because it's just not you know like when i'm talking i'm like so nostalgic talking about all this with you because right. it was a different time and you know if there was just a time when you could really dream of being a magazine writer and do it. And I got to do that. And it's, I, I had no, I, I don't think we realized at the time, like it was going to go away so fast, yeah, right. but it really went from this, like, you know, you would do these beautiful long stories and go to Los Angeles and all the stuff to toward the end. It was more about like how many tiny, stupid internet stories can you do? And you know, that kind of thing. And it just became much different. And that was why I felt really lucky that I got to get out when I did. And that, you know, for me, writing books is so much more satisfying because I control it all. It's what I want to be doing. And I get to go be a nerd, you know, in these archives and stuff like that, instead of worrying about the pressures of like internet traffic or whatever. I, I, I'm wondering, and I don't know if you would know this answer, but I've never... I've never spoken to anybody who I think could actually have a chance at knowing the answer. Why can't they monetize internet publishing? Is it because people just won't pay for subscriptions? Because I get pissed. Yeah. Like, Washington Post, I follow you on Twitter. You're going to make me yeah. pay to read the article? I'm like, screw you. Yeah. But at the That's same exactly time... That's exactly right. That, That's it, exactly why. Is it that simple? When, it's because, like, they... I don't know if this is true, but it's almost. it almost feels like they kind of, like, did it wrong to begin with. It's like... Everybody just gave it away for free, starting and, off that. And then it was like everyone got used to having it for free. And I do the same thing. Like, I pay for a few things now. I actually pay for the Washington Post. But then there are certain things. It's like, I can, I'm only going to do so many, right? Like, I can't do yeah, it's them like all. streaming services. I don't need Netflix, oh Hulu, Disney Plus, and cable. Like, if I, if I start... streaming services right now. Like, this is my the bane of my existence because I'm like... Now I'm like, well, apparently, I guess I'm probably going to get HBO Max, Go Plus, whatever the heck it is now, um, eventually. But it's it just feels like I I didn't mean to get Disney Plus, and now I've had it for a year. Yeah, right. Um, I got it. For, I got it to watch Hamilton, and said I was going to cancel it, and then never did because yeah. they did these other things I wanted, and now here I am. And it's it's the same way, absolutely. Yeah. It's all none of them are prohibitively expensive, but it's hard to get people to like pay for all of this stuff. And so it used to be you'd pay for your subscription to entertainment weekly because right. it came in the mail. Plus they sold these ads for like a lot of money. Cause there was like a certain cachet to reaching those people. Now it's just sort of this like free for all. Yeah. But see, blah. so that's something I can't figure out either. Cause I'm like picturing a magazine article. And if I don't know the technical terms, I'll probably sound extremely stupid sure. to you, but you'll be super nice. And I will call me stupid. But like, if you picture like the top corner and there's an ad there, why yeah. can't that just translate to when I click on the article and hold the same value? That's what I have trouble right, understanding. Right. It's, it seems like, and I don't know if this is still true, but I know it was true at some point that like, even when the internet became super, super popular and like a main part of our lives, it was still the case that like print ads would sell for so much more than an internet ad. Mainly, maybe because that's, it's just the way the price point started. I'm not sure why, but somebody needs to figure it out because we're not going to have journalism soon. And that is going to be much sadder in other 
areas of expertise besides entertainment. Yeah, no um, doubt. Like you want people paid to go out there and get scoops, man. They like really it just... need that. It's really important. So I do encourage people to pay for some things. Like in our household, we pay for the New Yorker, the New York Times, and the Washington Post online. And I think the Atlantic now too. And um, that's sort of where I'm like, okay, but I'm not, if I click on something from the Wall Street Journal, I just go like, okay, sorry, we're at capacity right now. Yeah. I'm not paying I, I for do. too. I wonder why no one's done like, it's just a penny. Instead of like, I need a $3 monthly subscription, right. unlimited access. Why can't right. it just be the good old, like when you would buy a newspaper for 35 cents and read like two stories, nobody cares. Right. It was pocket change. So right. like if we have Acorn for stock investments where I can buy a cappuccino yep. and I got 24 cents, throw that in the stock market. Right. Why can't like somehow they say, Hey man, when you pay with your Apple pay, we're going to sign up for the Just Washington post. A little tiny, yeah. Like or every time you read one story, maybe even, yeah, it's it like a be, I don't know. I'm sure people are working on all of this, but it is a really, I can tell you even as somebody, I've been freelancing now for 10 years, like I write freelance journalism in addition to my books. And really when I started out doing that, it was a pretty significant chunk of change and it's getting really hard to make enough money with freelancing. And I don't know how people, there are people who do this without books and other things to supplement their income. And I just cannot imagine doing that because you know you get paid if you're lucky now it's like you get paid like 150 dollars or 300 dollars for an article and that's just not a, you can't cobble together a whole living at 300 dollar increments and, you know it's just not enough and for an article like work wise it's hard for me to understand artists or creative people yep. compiling something like I, so i'm a teacher middle school teacher i i work these hours i get this right. money Right. What's the time invest? Is there a kind of a standard time investment? It depends on, and that's actually how I make most of my decisions. It's like, I, I really know well now because I've been doing it for decades. Like I know exactly how much, how long something's going to take me. So okay. I tend to be more of when I call brain dump stories now. So it's like something where I'm an expert in it already. So if somebody came to me and said, can you write something about Tina Fey or Grey's Anatomy or Sex and the City or Seinfeld? Sure. I have most of that stuff in my brain. It's probably going to take me an hour or two. If you're going to pay me 300 bucks, sure. Great. That's fine. But what if I was starting from scratch? What if I didn't know anything? Yeah, right. And I had to do all that research. That would take a lot more time. And so that's when I would say like, no, I can't do that for $300 because it's going to take me a couple days or a week. And, you know, more involved stories where you're supposed to talk to a bunch of people. I just wouldn't do that for $300 because that's just not worth my time. So I try to really focus now on only things that like I'm an expert in and will be pretty easy for me anyway. When did you feel, um, it, I was talking to um, a comedian um, actually in New York. I forget the, might've been Brooklyn, but yeah. he was like, he, he wasn't, a, he's not a professional yet. He's doing like the open mic grind, but he's like, I want you to call me comedian Rob J. And he's like, I'm not trying to be arrogant, but I'm, mm -hmm. I'm basically putting that pressure on myself to live up to a title. Mm -hmm. And not that you're going by writer Jennifer, but I, I feel like for writers, it would be like, wow, when I can have a life, when I can, this is my career because I get to write and get paid and I don't know, have a savings account. <laughs> to me, that would be like the marker of I've made it. 
Did you have a moment when you were like, wow, I'm an actual writer. I, this is what I do. I don't have to have a side hustle or you graduate college and you're just that awesome right away. I, well, I mean, I was, I was not working journalist, right? So in a way I've always been that because I did, you know, I was working at the daily pilot after I graduated. And so I was always a journalist. And so I was really lucky in that way. Um, there was a brief couple of months when I moved to New York and I had to work at the women's clothing store express and fold sweaters for a little while, but it was not that long. Dude, people Um, need to be so much nicer to the clothing store workers for the daily grind of listening to music and folding clothes for eight hours. That's exactly what I did for like three months while I was there. I remember the music. Dude, they could go postal. Um, Like they're the next generation of going postal. Exactly. But, um, you know, so for most of my adult life, I've been really lucky in that. At least journalists, you know, even as a journalist, like I've always been doing something related to that. Um, but I do think that it felt like a big deal when I was able to quit my job in 2011 at Entertainment Weekly, which had been my dream job, you know? So I, had, I was quitting my dream job at this point because I had sold my next book and knew that, and I felt that like I had made, I was getting enough of an advance on the book that I was going to be able to make it. So I had a savings and that advance and I was going to freelance. And I've been, I'm going to have my 10 year anniversary as a freelancer this year. And I just realized that recently and I'm pretty excited, but it's actually soon. It's June. Yeah. It's like, it's, I have a thing up on the wall. That's why I'm, that's why I'm looking. Um, it, but June, June, 2011 was when I left entertainment weekly. So it will be my 10 year anniversary of being freelance. And that to me feels like a pretty big deal because there, it was, it's been close a lot of times. It's been touchy a lot of times. And I will say that I probably would not have been able to do it without also having a partner who gives me health insurance and has um, a steady job as a computer programmer, which is the right thing to be in at this time. Or Canadian. Canadian would be the other right thing. If he were Canadian too, that would be incredible. That would be like better than Justin Thoreau. (laughs) He is Canadian too, right? Isn't Justin Thoreau Canadian? I think he actually is. Um, almost positive. God, any, whatever. Um, I, um, it's interesting to me that you're referring to yourself as a freelancer and not like a published author, as like the. I am that too. No, no, yeah. You, no, yeah, you are that. But I guess like it's. Is there a freedom to the freelance where it's more of a choice thing, or is it? Am yeah. I just being a weird word picker? No, I think that's right. I mean, I could, you, people also, I think this is astonishing, but people really do have full-time jobs and write books too, which I did once. My very first book I wrote while I was still at EW and it was so, so hard. And so that was why like my thing was, okay, for my next book, I have to sell it for a certain amount so that I can quit my job so that I can focus mostly on the book. It's really, it takes a lot to write a book and then also to promote it properly. And so I feel really lucky that so far I've been able to have a life where it's like I can drop most of the other stuff and like focus on the book at certain times. And that makes it a lot easier when you're, if, when you're freelance instead of being on staff somewhere. And I, uh, I chapter four, and I feel like I'm really going to screw the name up and I don't mean to be disrespectful with it. Seinfeldia. Uh-huh. Okay. So I'm on chapter four to Seinfeldia and the depth like I, I think you just got past the initial five episodes and mm-hmm. I'm thinking of all the information that went into that. Yeah. I would need like 12 hours locked in a room, leave me alone to stay in that moment 
I couldn't imagine doing that like, oh, hour here. Oh, let me go pick the kids, go to soccer practice. Hour here. Right. Oh, eight hour shift over here. Hour. Exactly. Okay, now let me go be a bartender. Like the sustained concentration to me it would be impossible. Yeah, that was what I found is when I tried to do it once. Like, and it, I, it, at that time when I did that, that one time, um, for about a year, it was like, so, you know, I'd go to work, I'm writing, I'm writing and reporting all day, go home, write and report at night, you'd sleep, do the same thing on the weekend. I'm still researching and reporting to do my book. I take a vacation. That's what I'm doing. And so at that time, like I did not have any other life really. I did not have a partner. I broke up with everyone by saying, it was kind of nice in some ways because if you didn't want to go out with someone anymore, I could always be like really busy with the book, but it was true. And it's, what, kid, um, it's yeah. what people do with newborns. They're like, sorry, the baby's sick. I have a newborn. <laughs> I have a newborn. It's okay. Um, yeah, but it just really, um, it was so unsustainable. And I really felt the, the big thing for me too was that I, I really felt like I couldn't do a good enough job okay. on the book okay. unless this was, and like the way you can't say to work, like, oh, but I have a book. You know what I mean? Like they don't care. That's not their problem. They didn't ask you to write that book. So <laughs> I had to have it so that with freelance, it's like I can say yes or no to each each little assignment, and I have a lot more control. And I can just like, for instance, when I have a book coming out or whatever, I'm very dramatic, and I'll just be like, "Forget it, I'm not doing anything. This is what's happening right now." And so I'm able to prioritize every part of the book process over everything else. Is it busier for you at one point of the process? Like, so I would imagine here I am acting like an expert, but like in my head, I'm like, you kind of got your pre-planning of laying out what you want to do. Then you start like researching and actually typing and then you finish it. And now you're like pub, um, giving it pub. You're going around and trying to like market it. Yeah. Right. Is one of those stages like more time consuming than another, or is it all just equally (laughs) time consuming? When you're writing on, like, when you're coming up on your deadline and really, really, like, you have to finish the writing, that's really stressful. And then um, when it comes out, like, I actually find that when it comes out is my most stressful time because it becomes less, you know, I'm just talking about the control aspect and, like, it's much less controlled in a way when it's coming out because, like, you have to just go do whatever. Like, whoever wants to interview you, you're going to go do it. I mean, you don't have to, but you know what I'm saying? Like, you don't have as much control over that aspect of it. And so you kind of have to be available for whatever is thrown your way so that you can be out there. Also, it's just for writers, I think we all feel more comfortable in that part. We're like, we're alone with the thing. And then when it's out in the world, it feels very stressful. So that part is definitely at least more stressful for me. Is it like a judgment thing or what stresses? I I would think you'd want to like show off. You just poured in all this time. You want, you want everyone to care about it, but it's also like, like I said, it's like, you have to be like at everyone's disposable disposal. If someone wants to talk about it with you, you want to be available at whatever time and you have to be nice to them, even if they're being weird and you're on the other side of the interview thing now, right? Where like you're being interviewed and they can say stupid things to you or whatever. That's not happening now, just to no, be clear. Uh, dude, I took the and, hint. Uh, in my head, I was like, fuck, man, and, you ruined it. you know, like, <laughs> it just feels a lot more... Yeah, and there's also the judgment aspect to some extent. Like, the sort of joke I always make is that, you know, when people are like, why is it stressful? I'm like, well, imagine if you got your job review in public in the New York Times and you never knew if it was when it was coming or what it was going to say. 
that's sort of what being an author is like, is that you often don't even know when those reviews are coming and you don't know where they're coming from. And you can just wake up one day and get, you know, an email from your publicist that says like, here's this. And you read it and you like, there's some, you know, crazy random person you've never met judging this thing that you just spent two years on or whatever. And so, yeah, it's good times. Do you, um, like, are you, is it a circle, the crit, the book critics where like, they know you by first name, you're like, you have dinner with them and there's this like cordial relationship or is it like a pretty separated society where you don't even, can't even picture them? It's usually, I mean, it's fairly separate. There's some insularity in publishing in general. A lot of authors know each other and that kind of right. thing. But, um, you know, especially the play, the big places, like the New York Times makes a really big deal about making sure if you write a review for them, they make a really big deal out of making sure you don't have a personal relationship with the author. Okay. Um, so it shouldn't come from a person who knows you at all. Um, and then oftentimes I've ended up making friends with the people, like as if they say really nice things and seem to really get you. Um, I feel like I've made friends with a few people who gave me nice reviews at first, but then what's terrible about that is the next time they can't review you because now they are friends with you and it's over. So um, you got to be careful with that. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting, right? Because like if you get the review, it's like, wow, well, I want to thank them. Maybe send them a gift. Right. And it's like, oh my God, no, but then I'll lose this. And if they like it, let me, you have like a back alley middleman. That yeah, would be your burner profile. <laughs> and the New York Times is in particular is very careful about this. So for instance, I think that I tried to like tweet at the guy who wrote a really nice review of Seinfeldia. Um, who is one of their main book critics, Dwight Garner. And like, he just does not respond. Like he just will not like, I have no idea what that guy looks like. I do not know what his deal is, uh, but I can like quote parts of the review that he wrote about. (laughs) I'm sorry. Made you whole. Um, he, it, it was, it was a big, he made a really big difference in the lifeline of Seinfeldia. He, he had wrote a very, very nice review right before it came out and it made what I believe it made a huge difference and it certainly was nice for my ego. So, um, but no, I, I don't know what his deal is. I've never met him. I've never interacted with him. I tried to thank him on Twitter. He did not respond. So he's keeping it, keeping it classy. Yeah. Right. The integrity, journalistic integrity. That's right. <laughs> Can you help me understand why, and this, this is, again, is going to make Delaware seem terrible because that's where I'm from. I, I know it's a big deal, New York Times bestseller and getting reviewed, but mm-hmm. I don't understand the extent or why. Like, why is that? Is it because they have this integrity where they're like, these people who give these opinions are unbiased and it's their opinion without, like, you think of lobbyists, I guess, and it's like, right. they don't get to get lobbied. They're independent. Right. I mean, there's, and it's, it's the paper of record. It's also like the paper in the, you know, the big paper that happens to also be in the town where publishing is. So it's a long history and, um, you know, they're kind of make or break and the people who read it, it does tend to sell books more than some other places that you might get a review, you know, that's good. Where like a bunch of, like a bunch of readers read the New York times and care what it says, you know? Um, and yeah, the, the bestseller thing is, is a big deal. And, you know, it's just like any other business though. It's like box office or something else. There's only so many ways to measure it. And so something like that makes a really big difference. The same way that being number one at the box office your first week 
makes it so that more people want to see it. So which makes it so that more people want to see it. And I can tell you having been on the other side of it, that it doesn't like the, the bestseller thing really is a self-perpetuating thing. Like a lot of people have read Seinfeldia and a lot of people continue to read Seinfeldia because a lot of people read Seinfeldia. (laughs) Like that's just, it's so exponential. It's fascinating. Yeah, right. Well, I mean, I'm going to be talking about it as I continue to listen to. Although I was a little mad at you because it messed up my pace when I went for my jog. I do (laughs) notice when I listen to like books and podcasts, I I run like 20 to 30 seconds slower at my pace. Um, Because I don't know, you just don't find the rhythm of the music that increases your step count. That's why I don't listen to, I I only listen to music when I run. That's the reason. Um, do you, do you get anything cool for being a New York times bestseller? Like I know if you get so many YouTube videos, you get this cool, like button from YouTube. That's too bad. They, I actually, they don't, you don't, um, they really should have that. But, um, yeah, all I've got, all I got was like people sending me screenshots via email when it happened, but, um, what would be a cool thing? Like would a bookmark be stupid, like a golden bookmark or, I agree. I think they should do something like that because it's, it's nice. And it's, I mean, what we get is we get to say it in our bio for the rest of our lives. We get to yeah. say New York times bestselling author and that's exciting. Did it, does it set expectations where now like you feel less about a book or something if it doesn't reach that peak again? Yes. Yeah. Okay. It's I, really I felt- I felt really terrible asking the question. I didn't know if that's no, like something I love that's that question. insensitive. I love that question. But it would, yeah, it would, I think it would screw with me. Like if I won teacher of the year my first year and then never got yep. nominated again, I'd be oh. like, how come I'm not good anymore? <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's actually terrible. And um, it doesn't just do it to you, but it does it to everyone sort of around you. And which, by which I mean like your publisher and your agent and stuff like that. I mean, I'm not saying my agent is pressuring me, but like, there's just like for the next one, there was more pressure and then it didn't do that. And then it was deemed a failure when in fact, if you look at the numbers, like it did really well. So that's a bummer because it's like, it made the next one feel like this huge downer when in fact it did great by most publishing standards, you know, and that is unfortunate. So I, but I feel like more having gone through that now, I'm like more well adjusted about it and don't have, it's so crazy that it happened. And that's what you have to realize. It's just that it's more like, wow, I'm so lucky that happened once. It's like when people make fun of one hit wonders, I'm always like, don't make fun of them. Most people have zero hits. No doubt. So, right? Like yeah. most people, most pop singers don't have any hits. Yeah. So a one hit wonder is incredible. It's it's an amazing feat. It's a miracle. And that's what you have to realize. It's Vanilla just like, Ice is still rolling. Yeah, I mean, that's but, right. I mean, that the, you know who he is, yeah. right? You could have not. So that's the thing is just most people don't have any hits. And that's what I learned from covering, you know, entertainment for so long, to be honest. It's like people are in a lot of great, say, TV pilots that never go or, you know, go for a few episodes and don't get picked up again like most people assume that things aren't going to be a hit in Hollywood because that's how that's, life is that you was know something again in the book that I was kind of surprised about when you were talking when you had the characters having their dialogue and they were like I think it was Costanza Jason Alexander being like yeah. eh, this won't even last a week and it's like oh, I mean that's, that's a reasonable 
like guess because it it that's how most things are. So you can't. I mean, you always end up asking these people this question, but their answer is almost always like, you know, you say, "Did you think it was going to be this big hit when you started?" They're always like, "No, I didn't even like." I do a zillion of these things and most of them don't even make it past the pilot stage. So of course I didn't think that because like, how would I think that? And when it happens, it's a miracle and you just have to appreciate it. And it is something I genuinely have learned, especially from like writing books about classic sitcoms, for instance, they all said that, that, you know, the Mary Tyler Moore show, Sex in the City, Seinfeld, all said the same thing. We had no idea, of course, because why most things aren't a hit. Why would it be? And so when it happens, you just have to ride it. Is And I don't want to pick at a scab or a wound and feel free to curse at me if I do. Um, but I'm curious. I don't understand when it gets determined for New York Times bestseller. So like you publish a book, does it happen? Pri- like it can't happen prior, right? Unless there's a yeah. bunch of pre-sales. It's weekly, so it's very similar to box office in this okay. way too. I don't. I'm using box office because I feel like people have a better yeah. like grasp of that for some reason. But like, so you find out the next. So your book comes out on a Tuesday. The following Wednesday, so not the next day, but a week and a day later, you the first list will come out for that oh, sure. sales period. So, so you then, will find. Out are then. you getting like little updates throughout the week? Are you able to track things? We, or are you really are in the dark? If. If your agent or publisher, they have the information and you don't really, like normal people can't access this information. This is the difference between this and the box office. Um, It's not, you have to pay a bunch of money for a service to tell you this. So only like agents and publishers have it. So for instance, with Seinfeldia, they started to say like, they were like, we have a lot of pre-orders. And that was like, I'd never heard that before with another book. And I was like, cool. And then my agent said something like, I'm not saying it's going to happen, <laughs> but given how everything's going this week and given the other books that are out right now, because it's, by the way, it's all relative. It's like, you only make the list if, you know what I mean? Like if you're number five. Yeah. It's not like going platinum where if you sell right. whatever, right. Like 10 million exactly records right. so, or you go gold, it's just. Right. It's it, comparative. Yeah. It's a comparative thing. So if you happen to be out in a, a week when, a bunch of other huge books are out. You might not make it even though you sell a ton. So she was like, given how everything else, whatever, what else is out this week, given what I am seeing so far, there's a chance. So I did have that like one warning, but I didn't really, I was like, sure, sure, whatever. Like I didn't really believe it was going to happen. So um, yeah, so it's weird. And I really was not sitting around. Like I hadn't, didn't have it on my brain that Wednesday at all, just because I, I thought like, oh, it's good that everyone's saying good things, but I tend to not look. I actually don't track sales. Um, it would drive me nuts, dude. Like it, it would be bad. like checking. It, it's funny because when you're saying that, it's almost like pre-social media, how many likes, how many clicks, how many views, yep. which is so harmful for kids. It's and bad. as an adult, like I, I would have to fight the urge to not hit refresh as That's- often as I could to be like three. Okay. Five more. Okay. Yep. And you can do a little bit of that on Amazon as an individual author. Um, you can look at what they're say. They put little flags on it. They'll say like bestseller or bestseller in your category or that kind of thing. If it's starting to trend or you'll start to see that it's hitting, like I could see that it was starting to hit like the big major main list of Amazon bestsellers. 
Um, and then once your book's been out for more than a week, you can actually track your sales in, there's like an author portal on Amazon. Okay. So you could be checking that all the time. I actually, and I feel like sometimes I'm sure people don't believe me. This is really, really true. I do not look at my sales because there's just nothing I can do about it. So I just let my publishers tend to only tell you mostly good news. So I let them, same thing with reviews. I don't go looking for reviews. They tend to send me the good ones. And that is what I know about. And I'm fine with this because I just don't think I need the extra stress. No, Um, I've, there's a famous, um, I don't know how famous it is, but there's a story about Derek Jeter where in the baseball season, he, he would like disown people if they were negative or brought some negative energy to his space. And he was yeah. like, it's detriment. There's no way I can go up in a 182 game season right. on a grind. And all of a sudden I got to get a hit. And I'm thinking about some dude that chirped at me about yep. blank. No, I don't want exactly. it. And yeah, writing would exactly. have to be a baseball type grind. Yeah. I think it's the same. I, that's I, especially like my thing is like, I have to be out promoting this right now. So I don't need yeah. the times that I have accidentally found out about a bad review or whatever. It puts me in such a bad headspace that I'm just like, I don't need to hear about any of this while I have to be out talking to people about this thing. So I figure they're going to tell me what I need to know. And I've had a few friends tell me that their publishers will tell them like pre-sales aren't as high as they should be or whatever. I was like, I never want to hear that. If I had a <laughs> Shut publisher, your mouth. That, it's just because like, what am I, what do you want me to go out on the street and start making people pre-order on Amazon? Like, what do you expect me to do? So yeah. I just don't want to know. And so I tend to just, be blissfully ignorant for the most part and hear the good news when it happens, which made it really nice when I was a bestseller. I was just like, that's a nice surprise. Thank you. No doubt. Christmas. So I, I'd seen you again with my internet. I'll call it research. Joe will call it stalking. Yeah. Um, you seem to like engage with some, some of the comments. Like if people are leaving you comments, I've seen you reply. I'm curious about like the balance between wanting to engage, like you were nice enough to answer to me and I, I'm a, I'm a creeper. I'm a stranger, right? Like it could be a setup kind of a thing, mm-hmm. but then how do you not like, or when you come across, or I don't even know how to, what would be the right way? Like, are people jerks on your comments or are people still kind of nice? I'm really lucky in this way. And I might, I, it's possible that I would change my tactics if things got different, right. but once in a while, like, and this is a thing authors all complain about is like once in a while, for some bizarre reason, someone will like write a, mean online like write a bad online review of your book and then tag you and be like i wrote a review of this book by jmk armstrong and i always assume like if they do that it's going to be nice so i will click on it yeah every once in a while you'll click on it and be like why did you tag me in this bad review most of the time that doesn't happen and most of the time for me and so i would guess that it has a lot to do with my subject matter and stuff that you know, I bet if I were writing nothing but like super feminist manifestos or about <laughs> race relations or something, that it might be different. Yeah. But I think because most of my work tends to attract people who are pretty enthusiastic about the subject matter, it tends to be pretty nice. Once in a while, someone might want to be a smarty pants and tell me, like, actually, I was wondering that, like, who's the <laughs> so the negative comments would have to be so like uber intellectual because the research that goes into it, like, who's right. contradicting your Seinfeld right. Genesis recounting? Right, you exactly. Know? So, and, like, once in a while, people just want to be like annoying nerds who want to like tell me a thing that they think I don't know or 
that they think I got wrong or something like that. But most of the stuff is like people being excited about it. And so I certainly don't mind these being like, thank you. That's, and it is really nice to hear when someone says something nice online about it. So I like to at least acknowledge that and have that. Cause I do think I, I do have sort of a philosophy that, you know, you make fans and sell books like one at a time. And so I've had people who have followed me through multiple books because I was nice to them and interacted with them online. So do when the first you came out, Carolyn, and I, I think we had like a two to three tweet engagement mm-hmm. and I'm like brand loyalty right there. This brand is, loyalty. It's, it's totally true. It totally you know, happened. Thinking back and now, I've like seen. you're right about that. Yep. It's Act- completely true. It's actually the reason why I bought the hardcover for the third one. Yep. I bought electronically yep. the second and then I was like, you know what, man, I'm going to do it. And I, yep. I put a, I, Oh my God, that's so true. So when it came out, I'm like, Hey, best way to get a book to support you. And she's like, go to your local bookstore. And I'm like, yep. hardcover right there. I don't even yep. care. This is, this is, I really believe that this is true. And you know, so that's, I've always tried to, especially with people who are nice about things, which is, like I said, I think I'm lucky in that people are mostly nice to me online. So I think that's special for my corner of the internet. <laughs> How many times have you been asked, like, why not stories? Why nonfiction? Do you get asked I mean, that all honestly, the time? It's, it's part of it is just like luck or whatever. I don't, you know, like, it's just, the way things worked for me. I wanted to be a novelist when I grew up. I wrote fiction too. It's just that this is what worked for me. And I bet that's true. Like, I think it's true of a bunch of people who are published authors. Like, it's not that they wanted to do this or want to do that. It's like, this is what the world wanted from me. This is the one that stuck. And, you know, once you do one kind of thing, it's, you know, it doesn't mean you can't do a different kind of thing, but it's a lot harder so like I could do it, I could write a novel, but the world's not clamoring for a novel for me. So, you know, it would have to be something that I do on my own time and, you know, kind of an investment of time that I may not have right now. So Because you've kind of built this nonfiction following in a simplistic right. way that typically yeah. won't translate over. Yeah. And so like, that's, you know, it's just like if Caroline wanted to write a, something else, it's like some people would follow her to that, but they might not like some people won't because they want to be upset yeah right even be upset so it's sort of similar in that sense of like and more importantly our for us the real important thing is the publishers like what they want from us because they're the ones who pay us the money directly and so you know publishers want a track record in a certain thing and so they it's much easier for me to sell a book you know, to sell a nonfiction book about pop culture history than it is for me to suddenly decide that I write, you know, um, romances or something. My mind went to romance novels as well, like the good old beach romance novel. Yeah, exactly. So I could do that. And, but, and I might have a slightly easier time than someone who has zero track record in anything, but, um, you know, no one is waiting for my next thriller. So, you know, this is, this is how it works. How, how important is the publisher relationship? Like the, the trust, I, I guess I'm, I'm looking for some like insight because it seems like the leap of faith. And again, not to make it all about Seinfeldia, but it was the one I'm listening to. Like, it's super interesting when the research of pitching an idea and finding that stakeholder that believes in you and then gives you freedom to go. 
because ultimately like yep. their rep, their jobs are kind of on the line with your okay. product, right? Completely. So it's all like, that's what, it, that's what I mean is like, it wouldn't really, if you want to really get into it, like, yes, yeah, it's, it's cool to have fans because then your publisher knows you have fans and they care about that. But like your, your actual customer is your publisher. They're the ones who pay me. They send me a check. So, um, that's what I care about is how much money will they give me in that advance? Is it going to be enough to give me enough time to do this project? Like that's, and they're the ones who decide, do I get to do another one? They're, you know, they're, that's everything. So it's really not about, except to the extent that you leverage that with your publisher, your, your fans. Um, it's, it's a lot about the publisher and whether they, want to take another chance on you you know and so it goes a long way I think that I've had a successful career partly because I'm pleasant to work with and I work really hard to promote my books and they know that and I don't make trouble for them and I think that that gets me a long way and gets me able to I always say like the big goal is just to keep getting to write more books that's all (laughs) I want for a good price for a decent advance yeah to make a living well you should right like I mean you Starving artist is very overrated. I don't know if that's an enjoyable thing. What, I like to. I'm curious, what makes you pleasant to work with? Like, uh, just doing doing what you know. I don't want to make it too like it is. There is a little bit of that like good Midwestern girl thing, but people pleaser. But you know, I mean, I think they're. I, I get the impression that some authors are difficult to work with. You can be a prima donna. You can be like, no, I won't do that. No, I don't want to do publicity no, you know, any of those things, you can be sort of difficult at any part of the process. And I generally tend to be like, I turn in my work on time. It's pretty clean. I don't need a lot of editing. When I get editing, I'm not a jerk about it. Um, you know, that's, an, you know, you could be a jerk about editing too. Uh, I tend to just like take most of the edits and argue with a few of them. And if I want to, and then, the book comes out and I tend to say yes to most publicity, which everyone enjoys and um, work really hard to promote it and have my own publicity contacts and own avenues to get it, get the word out, whether or not the, the publisher does anything at all. So I think all of those things help a lot. God. What are, I'm curious, what are some like, are there general editing? Like, you know, when you write something, you're like, fuck man, this is going to get flagged. And yeah. like, is, is the, are there common things that happen and like how do those discussions go down? I mean, I've tended to have mostly pleasant, you know, editing experiences. And I think a lot of it has to do too with like, if you're on the same page the whole time, like you don't want to be like, I'm writing this narrative nonfiction about Seinfeld and then you turn in like a book about Britney Spears. Like you can't <laughs> do that. So like if you give them the thing that you all agreed you were going to do from the beginning, in about the same form that you agreed on you're a long way there already so I had a few I did I had a few fights on Seinfeldia um that fight that makes it sound so aggressive but like I had I fought for a few things with my editor on Seinfeldia um is it wording or topics like so in my head like like content stuff like is this you know and what are we going to start with and um like we fought a lot about the beginning of that book and um you know, that sort of thing. And a couple chapters that got cut that I was, you know, in the end I felt okay about 
Oh. where we did but the thing about Seinfeldia too is that people weren't writing as many books about tv at the time so it felt more like a big chance that they were taking and so they second guessed a lot of the stuff and the biggest thing that we thought about was you may have noticed that I you know I have that beginning and you'll see it more toward the end as well that I talk a lot about the fan culture surrounding Seinfeld and they were fighting with me on that at the time um I think it I, sets we, a great context, man, because it, t- it you start off with it's such a big freaking deal, it's and you still get a to- big deal. It's it was it was sort of to me the biggest, the most remarkable thing about that show is that it still engenders this this very intense fan culture, I, and it was something I wanted to document. Going through the beginning, um, not to yeah. belittle their opinions, but me listening yeah. to the beginning, I it took me through like forty eight different episodes, and now as I'm right. going through the stories. I can't right. wait to get the details of all the things that you just reminded me of through right. baseball. Right. I, I was like, I, I thought it was a really fun way to start a book because you get to relive your own experiences and your own stories. And now you've like almost re you're reinterested and like, yeah, how right. did, why is it called yeah. monks? Exactly. Oh, it's a exactly. Painting. That's how that happened. Yeah. That was my thing too. And yeah. you know, I think the thing is that I'm the expert here, you know, compared to them, I'm the expert in Seinfeld. And, um, I think they didn't understand that some of the stuff, like they loved all the stuff about like Jerry and Larry creating the show and everything and wanted me to just start there. And I was like, it's great. And it's really fun. And we need it in there, but it's not new information. Like you don't understand that like for the for like serious Seinfeld fans, that's not new. So if they pick up this book and that's the first thing they see, they're not going to be excited because they're just going to be seeing they're going to be like oh that's everybody knows that whereas i felt like people would identify with this fan scene of like this seinfeld night at a baseball game so that is what i went with and we it worked out in the end worked out okay yeah interesting i've I've always wondered like actors i've spoken to a couple directors on the podcast and i'm always interested in you have a creative vision actors have a creative vision how do you merge that how do you give how do you take um, exactly. So, so like when you had mentioned clean editing, I, I've never spoken to a published author with editors that is like, uh, you wonder about those conflicts and how yeah. they get resolved. And it's, exactly. all, it's all about hand. Like I have hand. <laughs> yep, exactly. All right, well, Jennifer, I mean, you've given me two hour, two, two plus <laughs> hours at this point. Um, let me get you out of here on, on this. I'm going to assume not to be mean to you but that you don't know the very end segments of this podcast. I do not. Most people don't. Actually, only three. You, by the way, nice round 100th guest that has come <gasps> on the Getting to Know You podcast. It's, that makes me happy. Dude, it's pretty neat. Um, I'm amazed that it's gotten this far. So Great. out of 103 people have known, uh, shout out Kristen, Jeej, and Eric. Lovely. I want you to tell me a little story about you, any direction you want, and mm-hmm. I... I call it, it's this. Can I get your best first for last? We've saved the best first for last. Sponsored by Abstinence. Waiting makes it worthwhile. Okay. Let's see. I'm sure there's something good. And I did a shit job setting that up, by the way. I apologize. No, I think I get it. I think I get it. (laughs) This is so weird. I'm just going to go with what popped into my head. That's what I like. Um... And it's probably just because I just invoked the name of Britney Spears, but um, I'm a big Britney Spears fan. And um, 
one of the greatest, even though I am a New York Times bestselling author, one of the greatest accomplishments I believe of my life is that it was before the pandemic. So winter of 2019, I, um, I take a dance class in, in non-pandemic times. I take a dance class where we learn the choreography of like music videos. (laughs) That sounds like so much fun. Oh my God. It's so fun. Mitchell Wayne is the best teacher in the world. And I've been going for years. Well, in 2019, the winter of 2019, he did a special thing where some of us volunteered and we all learned the entire choreography of the entire baby one more time video. It is not easy. Go, go watch it. You will see. And I am also not 17 like she was, and I am not a trained dancer like she was, but a bunch of like women in their thirties and forties took it upon ourselves in December, November, and December of 2019. I mean, we practiced hard. We learned a lot and we learned the entire thing. And then we performed it at his Christmas party and we wore costumes. I was going to say outfits and and all, right? We did the entire choreography. I can still do some of it to this. Like I still have some of it memorized because that's how much it's in my brain. I don't have the entire like three minutes now. Um, but I really, I it's like, I, it sounds like I'm joking, but in some ways I'm really not that it feel, it was like one of the great, I like cried a little when we did it. Cause I just thought like, here's a bunch of people doing this thing. None of us need to do this. No one asked us for this. No, <laughs> and yet we all came together and did this dumb thing because it's something we really love. And um, I feel like it was that was like probably a first and a last in the sense that I'm not sure I'm ever again going to learn. I mean, I can't say for sure now because I might get really excited. We all might get really excited post-pandemic and, I don't know, learn the entire Oops, I Did It Again video or something. Um, but I was like genuinely proud of this. And it just felt like something that I never would have guessed I would be doing in my 40s and made me really happy. When so I picture you at some karaoke bar when we're open. I love karaoke too. And I right so and <laughs> I could see someone else picking this song and then you just kind of slowly exactly. <laughs> Dude, it's when's the last time you yeah, actually busted it out? Um it's been a while since I really like I can do it in my head kind of what I've found is occasionally if I do try to do some of it it's like I can do it better like the way I just did it for you where Chair it's like dancing. more just hand movements or, or like in my head I really still have the choreo if you go to actually do it I'm like oh it's it's a lot like it's physically demanding so it it could be a little bit more difficult but I remember I did do it so we still had like regular new year's that year um, oh, yeah. and so it was only a couple weeks after we had done it at Christmas and I, I did a fair amount of it at a, at our new year's party. Um, and that was, and people were very impressed or they acted like it. <laughs> <laughs> I guarantee you it would be impressive if, if it, was, <laughs> it would, it would be impressive. Jennifer, thank you so much for giving up so much of your time. Thank you so sure, much for coming really on. Um, it was great getting to know you and, um, best and of luck going forward, man. Thanks. On the subject I like Thanks to Jennifer for giving up so much of her time, giving up great insight into interviewing, and for telling some really cool stories. 
Thanks to Andre Psyche for supporting the Getting to Know You pod. Search up Andre Psyche, P-S-Y-C-H-E. It's Psyche on social media. Give him a follow just for the fuck of it. If you have not already, friend and follow the Getting to Know You pod. We are also on the Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. The word of the pod is worm. Worm is the word of the pod. Post that word on any of our social media or tag the Getting to Know You pod when you use it on yours to get a shout out on our very next podcast. Don't forget, subscribe, rate, and review the Getting to Know You pod on Apple, Spotify, or your preferred podcast platform. Also, pretty please, go to our Patreon to support the pod for as little as $2 a month if you've enjoyed getting to know any of our guests. And finally, if you or someone you know would like to become a sponsor of or advertise on the Getting to Know You pod, we would love to partner with you. We have a wide-ranging global audience that would like to get to know more about your brand or business. How do you make it happen? Just message us. See you later, alligator.